Welcome to Come Along for the Ride, where we make the world a better place for horses. I'm your host, Tracy Malone. I was born on the country of the Wiradjuri people, and this podcast is brought to you from my home in the Sanford Valley, in the northwest of Brisbane, Australia. I'd like to acknowledge the Turrbal and Yuggera people, the traditional custodians of this land on which this podcast is made, and where my family and horses live and gather. I'd like to recognise their connection to land, water, community and our sacred animals. I am grateful to Elders, past, present and emerging, for keeping this sacred land here in Sanford safe and protected throughout many tens of thousands of years. I have great pride to live on country where the oldest known human beings tended to this land. I'm also grateful that you have taken the time to choose this podcast at this very moment. Thank you for being a part of the global change we are making to the welfare and training of horses. If you'd like to support the podcast and all the work that I do, then you can. Just head on over to patreon.com slash come along for the ride podcast and sign up. From as little as a cup of coffee a month, you can help me keep this podcast going. There are many tiers that you can choose from, and if everyone who listens gave only $5 a month, it would make a massive positive difference to me. In this episode, I spoke with Warwick Schiller from Warwick Schiller Performance Horsemanship. Most of you may have heard of Warwick already and probably follow him on the socials. So you'll know that he travels the world helping people with training their horses and has a really large following worldwide. He believes you are the perfect person to train your horse. The great part about talking to Warwick for me is that his story reminded me of why I started this podcast and brought me back to my core values as a horse person. I believe that we have such an influence on horses by what we are holding in our bodies and minds and we bring it to them every time we approach them or train them or ride them. He also reminded me that horses really want one thing only from us and that is our presence. I didn't want to get into training specifics with Warwick as such, as he gives you all of this online already. I wanted to know his personal story on his change in who he is and how he does things. I really wanted to see what makes him tick and he's changed a lot over these last few years and I really wanted to get in and check it out. A heads up, this is the longest podcast I've done. It is just over two hours. So sit back and enjoy the ride. Here is Warwick. Warwick Schiller, thank you so much for joining me today. Hey, it's a pleasure. Great to talk to you. Yeah, it's fantastic. Now, I'm not going to go into the normal questions that I do of what is it that you do and and where did you start with horses because that's not what we're here to talk about today. Anyone who wants to know that can go and have a look at Warwick's website and the links will be in the show notes and um, I'm sure you can find them and most people who are listening probably already know this story anyway. Um, The real, really interesting part and why I wanted to get Warwick on today was to talk about the shift that he made from traditional horsemanship to where he is now. So Warwick, my first question to you is, when did you realise that the traditional way of horsemanship wasn't for you and what happened from there? Well, I don't know if I'd say, uh, yeah, I wouldn't say whatever you call traditional horsemanship. I wouldn't say I figured out what I was doing wasn't for me. I've just figured there's a lot more subtlety and there's just a lot more to it than I was, than I was 
than I had been current, you know, I'd been seeing through the lens that I viewed everything through. And I really think, you know, you would have found in what you do that, um, you know, the lens people view their lives through is, is what they see. It's, it's very much quantum mechanics, quantum physics sort of stuff. You know, the observer creates whatever's in front of them. But um, so about five years ago, my wife bought a new, uh, bought a new reigning horse and we bought him sight unseen. Um, and you don't normally do that, but I bought him from a friend of mine. He's actually Australian. He's one of the best reigners in the world. He lives in Texas. And we bought him uh, from this friend of mine that lives in Texas. And he, he, this friend of mine's a very, very, very good reigning horse trainer, but he doesn't, doesn't do any horsemanshipy stuff. Like it's just running horses. They're just reigning horses sort of thing. And, and uh, this horse, it was an amazing athlete, but they couldn't, what we call get him shown. They couldn't, he couldn't go in the show ring and do the whole reigning pattern without something silly happening. And with this horse, he spooks at the judges chairs. And I'm like, well, I can fix that, you know, cause I know this guy has not worked through that in a way that is beneficial to the horse a lot of people they're just you know horse spooks or something they make them go and look at it or they make them ride through or they make them whatever well I've, I've never really done that sort of thing anyway so i thought yeah i think i can i can fix that that's easy and so we bought the horse he's a phenomenal athlete and uh, we got him home and actually we picked him up in las vegas there was a big show in las vegas and they went from texas to, to las vegas and robin flew from here to, to las vegas and she actually showed him there and he came home from there i was away but uh, anyway when we got him here, I couldn't make any changes with this horse with what I'd been doing. Like he was very, very shut down, like just zombie-like, um, especially on the ground. I mean, under Sadly, he was zombie-like as in very obedient, do, do what you ask. But on the ground, there was just, just like a statue sort of thing. And nothing I had done, I, I, you know, at this point in time, you know, my... YouTube channel had, I don't know, it's got 20 million views now. This is five years ago. So maybe it had 10 million. I don't know. Um, but I'm doing clinics all around the world. I've got maybe 10 million views on YouTube. I know what I'm doing, you know. Yeah. And uh, what I was doing didn't work with this horse. You know, I figured I can I can fix anything sort of thing. And what I was doing what didn't work with this horse. And so I it really made me step back away from him as in not try to change him. Um, you know, not trying to make him any different, just let him be who he is and try and figure, figure some stuff out. And it really made me look outside the, the lens of which I'd been, you know, I'd always been trying to learn stuff and I was, I was learning more of the same stuff. And what he made me do was look at things that were totally, totally um, different than what I'd, what I'd done before. The first, I think the first thing I actually started doing was I looked into clicker training. Um, and yeah, looked into that sort of thing. And then uh, just all sorts of, all sorts of different things I looked into and looked at things differently, but probably the, the biggest aha moment I had, which was probably a couple of years after that, really, you know, so it wasn't like, bam, all of a sudden I'm doing things differently, but I, I'd really been, uh, looking at listening rather than telling listening rather than asking for something so i wouldn't say wouldn't say use the word telling because training horses you know i was always very empathetic about how i went about things and i 
really broke things down into little pieces, tiny little pieces. And it's funny, you know, you're from the therapy background. I've learned a lot about the science side of it and the therapy side of it from the back end, meaning I've, I've had people, a lot of people come to clinics who are either in the mental health profession, they might be, you know, I've had psych nurses, I've had psychiatrists, I've had, you know, different people in the mental health business come to clinics and watch and, and they'll talk to me at lunchtime or something and they'll say, um, oh yeah, what you're doing there, that's excessive. We call that successive approximation or we call that titration. Or we, you know, so I learned all these scientific terms for what I was doing with horses. Um, so, you know, I've never been that, when you said before traditional training, I'm not, I don't think I was ever that anyway. Uh, but anyway, so I, I'd been really thinking about listening to the little things. I didn't even know what I was doing at the time, but I just had this hunch and I, I was doing a clinic in Texas and it was a three day clinic and a girl had a Mustang at this clinic. And the first day, I don't even remember what we did. It was some sort of groundwork with him. And so at the time I was having a morning group and an afternoon group and she was in the morning group. And I don't even remember what we did the first morning, some sort of groundwork. The second morning she came in and she was doing some groundwork and she went to walk down his near side and, and ask him to disengage, just ask him to cross and uncross his hind legs away from her, just yield over away from her. And when she went to do that, he kind of turned his head and blocked her. And she said to me, hey, he's blocking me out. What should I do? And I said, oh, well, let me have a look. And a lot of times horses will aren't actually blocking you out when you do that. What they're doing is the person thinks about what they're going to do when they get around the side of the horse, which is move their hind end over. And as they go to walk around there, the horse does it. You know, their head follows the person and their hind end moves over. And that's just people mentally getting ahead of themselves. And I figured that's what it would be. And I said, let me try. So I took over the lead rope. I was in front of him and I went to walk down his near side and he, he turned his head and definitely blocked me out. And so normally what I would do if they did that is just gently reach under their jaw with my hand and just move their head over. So if I was in his right eye and I put my left hand under his nose, move his head over, now I'm in his left eye and then I just go down that side. It's pretty simple. It's not like you, there's no punishment or repercussion or anything. It's just like, excuse me, I'd like to Passation. go down here. yep. Yeah, but I didn't do that. When he turned his head and basically said, I don't want you to go down there, I said, and I stepped back away from him to, to acknowledge that I saw that request to not go down there and i said into the microphone you know, i'm wearing a microphone i said into the microphone at the time I, I have no idea what i'm doing but just bear with me here for a second and I, I stepped back in front of him and waited for him to give me some indication of him being in a more relaxed state and and it wouldn't have been anything as big as a lick and a chew maybe his ears started to move or maybe he was not blinking and his eyes started to blink or maybe he was blinking slowly and he started to blink a little bit faster one of those things because when horses get tense, the more tense they get, the slower their blinking becomes. So it was one of those things. I forget what it was, but it was one of those things. And then I went to walk back down the side again and he blocked me again. I just stepped back and waited again till he processed that and gave me some indication he was a bit more ready. And I did that for five or 10 minutes. And after five or 10 minutes, I can walk down the side of him. He doesn't block me out. I thought that was weird. So then he's, so this horse is nine years old. He's been out of the wild for six years. So, and she's been riding him and the problem she has with him, he's randomly bolts. Okay. And bolting is a rather dangerous thing to happen 
with a horse when you're riding him. Yeah. And normally bolting is pretty easy to solve because no horse wants to bolt. There's a reason they bolt. You figure out the reason they bolt and, and, uh, the bolting goes away. You don't ever, you don't ever solve the bolting or the bucking or the rearing. Those are just symptoms. And I had to ask her about the bolting and I said, so what sets it off? Like what, what's the trigger? She says, I, I cannot figure out the trigger. Like, he could be in the same situation every day and then one day he'll bolt or he could not have bolted for a long time and nothing will happen. He'll bolt. She said, I can't figure it out. And uh, so I went down beside him, standing beside his withers. He's been ridden for six years. So I figured I could at least touch him, can't I? And I got my hand, my right hand, and went to put it on his neck. And as I went to just sit it against his neck, his head raised up half an inch. And I saw that and I took my hand away and I stepped back away from him and I waited for him to have another relax again. And I did that for five or 10 minutes and pretty soon I can walk from the front of him down to the side of him. He doesn't block me out. I can put my hand on his wither. He doesn't raise his head up at all. Doesn't tighten up at all. So then I go, okay, now I'll ask him to disengage. He disengages perfectly fine. And I thought maybe he doesn't like that. So if I go back to the front now, when I walk around, he'll block me out again. I went to the front, walked around. He didn't block me out. I could disengage him. It seems like everything's fine. And so I handed the lead right back to Hannah was the lady's name. And I said, here, Hannah, just hang on him for a minute. Let's let him digest that for a minute. And I went and worked with someone else. And about 10 minutes later, there's a collective gasp from everybody at the clinic. And I turned and looked and this horse was buckled at the knees and just dropped to his belly and he's snoring dust clouds in the dirt. Mm. And then he has a roll, gets up, has a big old shake, and then down he goes again. And he's unconscious. He's out to it. And I said to Hannah, hmm, does he ever do that? She goes, I've seen him lay down once in six years and he was way out in the pasture. Sorry, those would be my dogs. That's okay. That means somebody's walking down the street in front of him. She said, I've seen him lay down once in six years and he was way out in the pasture and he saw me and he jumped up. But this horse never lays down. I just thought he's a horse that doesn't lay down. And it was about... 10.30 in the morning by this point in time. So he slept till lunchtime, slept for about an hour and a half in the arena with the microphone and other horses riding around. And then we woke him up and she put him away, you know, for lunch. The next day she came back in in the morning and uh, she said, what do you want me to do? And I said, I'll just hang on him for a bit and see what happens. And she held on to him. And about 15 minutes later, down he went again and he slept for four hours to lunchtime, just unconscious. And I didn't know what had happened, but I knew something had happened because this horse doesn't do that. And he was just completely relaxed and the whole bit. And I, when I came home, I looked up sleeping habits of horses or, you know, things about horse sleep. And, I, you know, we all know horses can sleep standing up or laying down. Mm-hmm. But what I didn't realize was that horses cannot get that, that deep restorative sleep, that REM sleep while they're standing up. They have to lay down to do it. And they have to lay down for about 30 to 40 minutes a day from what I've read in order to get that REM sleep. Now we can't ask the horse, how do you feel if you don't get that REM sleep? But we can ask humans and humans, if they don't get that REM sleep are either um, irritated or anxious. Sorry. And um, so, uh, you know, I knew something had happened then and I didn't, it was the first instance of me not ever training a horse and having a major change. Like I didn't ask him for anything. All I did was tell him, that I was listening to what he had to say. That, that was it. And the funny thing is I saw her last year, so almost a year ago now. And so it's now three years since the clinic and he hasn't bolted once. 
sense. Mm. And if you, so if you think about how big a deal bolting is in the horse world and he's always done it randomly and he hasn't done it since, since we started listening to him. And that was my big turning point to where, wow, there's so much more to this stuff than just training. You know, there's an art, there's an art to the training itself, but then this is, you know, this is beyond training. This is, this is connection. Yeah. uh, yeah, So I've been messing with it for a while now, but that was the first, that was the first thing that was, if, if you ask me what, what made me change, well, the horse I couldn't fix was what made me change. But and that, that is the story there. of every single person I've ever interviewed in this entire podcast world. There's one horse and they can all tell me the story of the one horse that changed everything. I love those horses. Yeah, well, I think there was two horses. One is the one that I couldn't fix, yeah. which I still have, and he'll stay with us forever. Um, and then the next one. The, the one that made me look elsewhere, but it was the Mustang Cody that made me aware of the, the huge impact that that having that that listening to what they have to say the little things they have to say um can make and since then you know i've I've learned more and more about the little things they have to say that you know in the past i wouldn't have even seen them and i found that if you can just honor those little things and be aware enough to see those things that's the beginning of it but you can honor those little things there's so many problems we have with horses that don't that aren't that just aren't there they're not horse problems they're they're problems that we create just by not listening and and i don't think and i'm not saying we create them by not listening because we go you don't get up in the morning and look in the mirror and go i'm going to go out there and not listen to this horse and i'm just going to make him do stuff it's just not being aware of how important that stuff is yeah we we are incredibly ignorant to it and even with all the knowledge that I have, I can still be ignorant to it sometimes because I've only got 10 minutes right now and I just need to get my horses fed and I can't listen to you right now. It, it's, yeah, even when you know, you can still not do it. But the, the importance of taking the time to do it and listening is, um, it makes the world of difference. It changes everything because there's a two-way conversation instead of one. It's, it's amazing. Yeah, I think, you know, I think that the listening is a big part of it, but who you have to be and how you have to be to do that listening, I think is just another whole part of it. That's, that's even bigger than the horse part. You know, this is where it, I think that this is where the horses really become like, you know, like therapy for us. There's a, there's an old Ray Hunt saying, they know when you know, and they know when you don't. And I used to think that saying meant they know when you know what you're doing and they know when you don't know what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the that's the way I looked at it a few years ago. But now what I realise is, you know, I, I always thought it was that way. And then I read an article a few years ago by someone who was around Ray Hunt a lot, and he said, when you're around your horse, you need to know what his ears are doing, what his eyes are doing, and what his muzzle's doing, what his flanks are doing, what his breathing's doing, what his back looks like, how he's placed his feet, is his tail up, down, clamped, what's it doing? You need to be aware of all those things. You need to know what all those things are doing because they know when you know and they know when you don't. So basically they can read your mind. They can tell when you're present and when you're not. And I really believe that a horse's sense of security in the herd is not the physical presence of the herd. It's the awareness of the herd. Like there's no, there's no enforcers in the herd. There's no, I don't go, oh, I'm going to hang out with this herd because if the wolves come, I know there's a couple of really big tough horses that have been 
taking boxing lessons and they're going to go and beat up on the wolf. It's not that. It's, it's the awareness of the herd. So I don't have to stand here and look in 360 degrees all the time to make sure no one sneaks up on me because if something happens, one of these other horses will see it and then they will change their energy. Their energy will get bigger and I will sense that and I will be aware of it and we can all decide where to have to run to. And I think that's what most people are missing with their horses is we're not present. You know, once you understand they can read your mind and they know where your mind is, if your mind is anywhere other than with them present in that very moment, they feel anxious. And so totally. we, I, I, think, I think we all are around horses and we're not present. And then because we're not present, these horses present us with some behaviors and then we become really good at fixing those behaviors. And then we pat ourselves on the back and go, this horse used to be anxious, but now he's not because I fixed it. And I'm really starting to believe that who we are when we show up and how we show up creates that anxiety that we get very good at fixing and patting ourselves on the back. Totally. And they can, you know, not only sense if we're present, they can sense where our tightness is in our body, you know, what, what it is that's going on for us, you know. Are you capable of running with me? If you see something or sense something that's coming out of the bushes, they, they know everything just because that's how they're built. That is their absolute makeup is to know these things. So what did you do once you realised this? How much did you have to change yourself and how did you do that? Because it's one thing to realise this, and then it's another thing to actually go, well, how do I then be present with horses when I come to train them? Oh, that was, that. you know, I think the horses gave me the hint and then, I don't know, the universe gave me another big hint, but um, it was about three years ago now, I think. So it was later that same year. So it would have been 2017, I think. Um, I was at a horse expo in... Madison, Wisconsin, which is a long way from here. It's, you know, it's for Australians. That's from like from where you are to somewhere over the Western Australian border, that mm. distance from here. Brisbane, um, Perth. And yep. I was at this horse expo and a lot of the horse expos here, you do a presentation in the arena with a horse, but some of them you also do a, um, a spoken presentation in like a lecture hall. And I did, there's one that I do that I've done at several different, number of different horse expos and I call it everything I learned in life I learned from horses. And I just talk about the life lessons that I've uh, learned from horses. And this one was the first time I'd done it since I'd had these, you know, these, these thoughts about things being different. And for some reason I was a lot more vulnerable than I'd ever been. And this room was full. There was a hundred and something people in this room, total strangers that I didn't know. And um, luckily in the, so where we had our booth in the horse expo, there's a lady in our aisleway who has another booth and her name is Barbara Schulte. And Barbara Schulte was a big time cutting trainer here in America. And then, and I don't know if it's because of it, her son died. He's about 17, I think. And I think this might've been something to do with it, but she ended up, going on a bit of a different path and she became a bit of a life coach. She went to a place in Florida that trains like Olympic coaches and stuff. It's called the human potential Institute. Mm -hmm. And then she became like a motivational speaker for horse people, especially competitive horse people. And I had only just, I'd, I'd known of her for years. I had a cassette tape of hers 20 years ago, 20 years before this. And that was the first time I'd met her. And so I, I said, Oh, I've got to go. 
they get rid of these talk demos. So I went off and did it and I came back and as I came back to the booth, I said, she said, how did it go? And I said, oh my goodness. I said, I'm exhausted. She goes, why? What happened? I said, oh, I, I let some things out that I've been holding in for a while in front of a crowd of strangers. And she goes, oh, well, you know what? And then she mentioned someone's name that I didn't quite catch, but she says, you know what? So-and-so says vulnerability is, is, a, is a big deal. It's the super, it's the superpower. She said, you know, she said, I think there's different levels of vulnerability. There's being vulnerable to someone, you know, one person, you know, and then there's being vulnerable to several people, you know, and then there's being vulnerable to someone you don't know. And she said, then like the ninja level is being vulnerable to a lot of people you don't know. I'm like, oh, is that what happened? You went straight down. to ninja. <laughs> yeah, straight to ninja. Full ninja. Um, so then I went back to my booth and different people come up to the booth and ask me questions and stuff. And there was a girl that came up to my booth and she's introduces herself and she's a subscriber to my online video library and we're talking about different things. And she happens to be a therapist. And I, I'm, I, she asked me a question about something and I said, oh, I remember this morning in my talk, and I talked about that and she goes, oh, I, I just got here. I didn't see you talk. And I'm like, oh, my goodness. I said, it wore me out. And, and I told her exactly why too. And she said, oh, Brene Brown says, um, <laughs> "That's the Brene name Brown twice. says, uh, shame's the scourge of society and that vulnerability is the antidote to shame. I'm like, that's brilliant. I said, do you know who Barbara Short is? She goes, I know who she is. I've never met her. I said, come meet her. I want you to tell her that. That's brilliant. So I drag her down to Barbara Schulte and I introduce him and I said, tell her what you just told me. And she says, well, Brene Brown says, and when she said that, Barbara looked at me and she goes, yeah, that's, that's who I talked to you. That's who I mentioned to you before. So here I am 50 years old. I've never heard of Brene Brown in my entire life and I get her mentioned to me two times in half an hour. Yeah. And that whole weekend was a weekend of one coincidence after another, like big time coincidence, crazy coincidences, uh, one after another. So there's probably 10,000 people a day at that horse expo. That's a big, big horse expo. Mm -hmm. And um, I had to do a demo and I needed a horse for it. And so I borrowed, had Dan James let me have one of his horses. You didn't know who Dan James is, do you? Double Dan's. Do you know who Dan is? Is he one of the Double Dan's, yeah? Yes, he's one of the Double Dan's. Yeah. And uh, so Dan was there. So Dan lent me a horse for this demo. And so I'm doing, and I had two girls from England with me at the time. And one of them would come to the demos and film and the other one would stay and man the booth. And this particular afternoon, I said to the one who was manning the booth, just shut the booth down, come and watch the demo. It'll be fun. And so we put a sign in the, in the booth, you know, we're gone, be back later. So we went, they watched the demo and then we got done with that. And we came out of there and I'm like, I don't know where to take this horse back to. I don't know where Dan is. And someone said, oh, Dan's doing a, a Liberty demo in the whole Coliseum. And so Dan's in the big Coliseum there with his Liberty team and all his workers. So I, I got no one to give this horse to. So we went around at the big Coliseum. There's a grassy patch there. So we sat on the grass and let this horse graze and waited for them to come out. And we were probably, so my demo went for an hour and a half, maybe. We sat on the lawn for an hour and a half. And then Dan and all his crew come out. And then we were sitting around chatting and people are taking pictures and everything else. And so after a while, they're going to put the horses away. And these two girls said, well, we better go back to the booth. I haven't been in the booth for three hours now. And I'm like, you know what? Forget the booth. Let's go and get a beer. If we were supposed to meet somebody, we'll meet them. And that's a flippant remark. I said, so we go and get a beer. Like I said, there's 10,000 people at this place. It's like the, it's like being at the Ecker if you're in Queensland or the Sydney Royal show, if you've been to the Sydney Royal show, it's that big. 
Yeah. And I went and found, we found this beer stand and got a couple of beers and I walked out of there and there was some booths outside and there was this guy was making leatherwork stuff and I'm into leatherwork. So I stood there and watched him for a bit and then we got chatting and he was a really nice fella and we chatted for quite a while. And then when I'm talking to him, I'm looking straight at him, I feel the energy or the sensation of someone standing beside me. And I turn and I look and it's the therapist lady out of this whole big 10,000 people in this place. She's happened to come along where I am. Mm. Bit of a coincidence, you think? Yeah. So I looked at her and she says, oh, I see you've met my brother. This guy's <laughs> her brother. So we chatted to them for a while and we maybe had another beer or so, you know, and it's getting, it's probably, we left the booth at about one o'clock. It's probably at 5.30 in the afternoon now. And um, I think the therapist lady, she lives, but we're still talking to the brother. And then these two other people walk up to us. And I remember seeing them in the front row of my demo when I did it with Dan's horse. I'm like, hey, hey, guys, how you going? We're having a chat. And he had a question. And this guy asked some sort of a training question. When we got done with the training question, he said, okay, well, we, we better go now. And so we, I say goodbye to him and his wife. And they turn to leave. And she looks at him and she says, you're going to tell him? He goes, okay. So he turns to me and goes, I've got to tell you a funny story. He said, after the demo, we went back to your booth to ask you a question and you weren't there. And so then we walked around and we've got to go. And so I went back to the booth one more time and you weren't there. And my wife said, we've got to go. And he said, you know what? Let's go get a beer. And if we're meant to, if we're meant to meet him, we will. And he went to the same <laughs> beer. I happened to be standing outside of in this whole big thing. So the whole, the whole weekend was all these coincidences, one after another, after another like that. And then the, that was the weekend. Then during the week, I went and did a clinic somewhere else back east there. And then on the weekend, I did a clinic back in Wisconsin. And we went to dinner on the Saturday night of the clinic. And the therapist girl lives in that area. And she was at dinner. And um, I was staying with a fellow who lived near there. And um, turns out she lives one street over from him. And he said, oh, well, come back to the house. We'll have a drink. So we go back to his place and, and uh, her and the therapist lady and her husband, they come and have a drink. And I was chatting with her and she has got these big green eyes and she will look in your eyes and ask you a question and just stay there, like stay hooked here, you know? And I kept like disassociating sort of thing, you know, I don't think I got answering the questions, but she must've triggered something in me because when those, they end up going and I sat around talking to the, the two English girls, plus this fellow we're staying with and we just sitting around having a chat, having a drink or whatever. And one of them asked a question and something shifted inside me. And one of the next one asked a question, the next one asked a question. And then all of a sudden the whole room tilted. It was the weirdest thing. The whole room tilted and it straightened up. And then I just start bawling my eyes out screaming, who are you people and what planet are you from? Like, it, like the world was not the same. Wow. And it's funny listening to Brene Brown. She says, a few years ago I had a nervous breakdown. My therapist calls it a spiritual awakening. And so it was one of those things. Definitely. I think it's been a long time coming, but that was the start of, um, you know, I think the horse, you know, the things with the horse and stuff was the start of a lot of things, but that was, that was, a, that was the real start. Cause I remember calling my wife the next day, the next morning, I think. And, um, and I said, I'm coming home, but I got to tell you something. I'm different. The world is not the same as it was when I left. And, and do you think that you were in the same position as that Brumby was? That the therapist and the that 
whole sequence of, of um, things happening is, is the same as what the Brumby had. Somebody really saw you and you let go and trusted something bigger than yourself and um, the woman who looked into your eyes and she waited for you because she knew that she didn't quite have you. You, well, you weren't quite there and she was waiting for you to, to show up. So you kind of, um, she kind of did to you and that whole experience did to you what you did to the Brumby. Uh, you know, a little bit, except the Brumby, I, you know, she asked, this lady asked the right questions. Yeah. You know, I mean, she, she asked, and I, I can't even remember what they were. I have no idea. And I have no idea what the other people, the questions the other people asked me. And it was just a normal conversation. But yeah, later on I said to him, how long have you been practicing this? Like it was a setup because it was like this, you know, like they all had planned. Okay. You ask him this. And yeah. Then I'll ask him this. And yeah. then the next one, yeah, and I'll ask him this. I was, I, and I cannot remember what any of the questions were. But anyway, mm. life has not really ever been uh, the same since. So I've been, yeah, you know, that led to me to look into a lot of interesting things uh, since then. But that whole year, I that whole year was an interesting year, two thousand seventeen, because I, I like the the Mustang thing was in February. And I spent the whole year in front of crowds of people who have paid me to tell them what I know. Um, I spent the whole year in front of them saying, I have no idea what I'm doing right here. It's not what I used to do. It's not what you came to see, but I think there's a better way. Fantastic. And I spent the whole year figuring it out in front of people, like I said, who have paid me to tell them what I know. And it was a pretty humbling experience, but it was a, very cool experience too. And what did you, what were your greatest learnings out of that year? Oh, mostly, you know, so many of them, but you know, like with the horses, it was, it was about, it was about waiting. It was about noticing the little things, you know, just realizing how much they communicate in the tiniest little things that we don't even see, especially if we're not looking and, and, and how present you have to be, to do all that stuff. And towards the end of the year, it was funny. I was doing a clinic in um, Caboolture at QSEC there. Mm-hmm. And it was the weirdest thing because people kept crying in the clinic. And it wasn't like I was asking them to do something hard. They were just standing there with their horses and all of a sudden they'd start crying. And I'm like, you okay? And they'd say, oh, yeah, I just thought about something that happened when I was a kid or whatever. And I'm like, well, what in the world's going on here? And I since realized that you know, a lot of times we aren't present because we're stuffing down these things we don't want to think about. And what I was having all these people do was working on being present with their horses. And, you know, what's something I've noticed with horses, if you, let's say you ask them to do something, just move half a circle, quarter of a circle, whatever, and then stop. When they stop, if you look at their, if you look at their muzzle or the side of their face by their mouth there, there's the trigeminal nerve there and um that thing will be twitching and jumping if those horses are having a hard time switching from the sympathetic nervous system back down to the parasympathetic nervous system Mm -hmm. i think a lot of horses have just been stuck in what i used to think was low level sympathetic nervous system now with polyvagal theory i know something completely different but um i've noticed that thing you know i said if that thing's twitching just wait because they are going to lick and chew. They're just processing. And so that, you know, when these people would be crying was when they've noticed that 
twitching. So they, so if you think about it, they're very present, they're looking at that, that twitching nerve on the side of a horse's face with no judgment, no expectation of an outcome, just waiting. And that seems to be when they'd all start crying. And so I think that that was when they were present. Mm. Yeah, we spend, um, we spend a lot of time and that's one of the, you know, our technology is so brilliant, but it also keeps us, gives us an amazing um, set of tools around us to keep us from our feelings and from the present moment. Oh, I think a lot of things do. Yeah. I really think a lot of things do. But another big... Yeah, not just thing, technology. It could be anything. Like, yeah. Yeah. Um, another uh, technology, just one of them, though. It's another yeah. one of those numbing things. But another thing, a really big thing that happened to be the next year, 2018, was... I'd started listening to Brene Brown's books and in one of Brene Brown's books, she said, you cannot selectively suppress emotions. If you suppress the lower ones, you automatically suppress the higher ones. And I'm thinking, hmm, well, I know that a male growing up in Australia, my generation, you're taught boys don't cry, boys don't, whatever. Um, in my family, we didn't show much of anything. You, you didn't get mad and you didn't get sad. You know, you, you don't show, you know, we don't show grief. You don't yep. talk about death. Um, you wouldn't even have talked about feelings if you grew up in the world I grew in, up in Australia. That's exactly right, yeah. You didn't talk about feelings, but you weren't allowed to almost have feelings. Yeah, you know I mean? that's right, yeah. You weren't allowed to get mad and you weren't allowed to get sad, basically. Yep. Um, and I thought, well, I know I've got the lower emotions are suppressed, um, but I wonder, I wonder if I could have more joy and happiness. I've never really thought of that. And so I actually contacted the therapist lady who was a, who, with the green eyes that was asking me the questions. I said, if I want to work on this stuff, what do you think I should I go and see a counsellor, therapist, whatever? And she said, I would go and see someone who specialises in dialectical behaviour therapy. And it's from people with um, emotional issues. Mm-hmm. I think it was started for highly suicidal adults, but they... I think now they use it for people with emotional regulation issues. So I went along to the therapist and told her what I wanted to do. And she said, oh, yeah, this would be easy. She said, we also offer uh, evening group sessions, but you won't need to do that. And after about three months of seeing this therapist, we weren't getting anywhere. She goes, you know what? I really think you should go to the group lesson, the group sessions too. So then I started going to this group therapy one night a week. And I did that the whole year. And I, I didn't get anywhere with it apparently in order for that particular type of therapy to work, you actually have to have some emotions. (laughs) So, you know, we have to do homework every week. And a lot of the homeworks were practice a certain technique you would need to use when you have an emotional crisis. And then when during the week, when you have an emotional crisis, you use it. Well, I'd never, you know, I'd come back and they go, did you do your homework? And I go, well, I did half of it. They said, well, why didn't you do all of it? I said, well, Part of it requires me to have an emotional crisis. I didn't have an emotional crisis. I don't have emotional crises. crises. Yeah. Um, but the stuff that I learned there was so good for me, but with the horses too. One of the homeworks one week was, okay, this week what you're going to do is count judgmental thoughts. Okay, so what we want you to do is, you know, put some pebbles in one pocket and when you have a judgmental thought, move it to the other pocket and at the end of the day, add up how many judgmental thoughts you have. Or maybe even get one of those little clickers like you see the bouncer at the nightclub have, you know? Yeah, that or would be hard with stones. I'd, I'd be weighed down. Train conductors or whatever, you know. 
And I thought, well, I'm probably going to have about three judgmental thoughts all day. So I'll just get three <laughs> rocks and stick them in my pocket. Yeah. So the first morning I had 21 before breakfast. Yes. <laughs> and the thing that I learned from that is when you have, when you, when you start counting judgmental thoughts, you realize how many of them you actually have. First step. Yeah. Second step is you realize how many of them you have about yourself. Yeah, and how unconscious how you are to them because they're how unconscious we are about part being our of the, our day. Yep. And um, where was I going with that? So, uh, so yeah, so you're counting the judgmental thoughts, and you know, and then that really got me into being able to reframe that stuff. Just like Brene Brown talks about the difference between guilt and shame. You know, mm. guilt is a focus on self. I mean, on an act, and shame is a focus on self. And if you instead of going Oh, I'm so stupid. You can go and go, oh, I did something stupid, but next time I can do that differently. But I think you can't do that unless you're aware that you just said to yourself, I'm so stupid. And yeah. I think the counting judgmental thoughts really made me aware of how much you say that. But the other thing it made me aware of is just how judgmental I was in general. And I didn't travel at all 2018. It took a year off. Um, Actually, we, I took the year off to do the World of Question Games, but just so turned out I did the whole year of therapy, which I couldn't do if I was traveling because I'd be missing a lot of stuff. And with the the DBT group therapy, if you miss two weeks in a row, you flunk out. Um, but when I went back to traveling beginning of 2019, I uh, noticed when I, the first airport I walked through, I walked through the airport and I realized that I, I'm a people watcher, okay? Everybody people watches an airport, but I realize when I people watch, I'm not thinking the best thing about them. I'm mm -hmm. judging them. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Our human and I condition. I was yeah. doing it. I realized I was doing it. And so then I started going, okay, what I'm going to do. So my wife and I went to a, oh, it's like a mindfulness resort sort of a thing for a weekend sometime in 2018. And, and one of the yoga classes we were in that the, the yoga instructor said something about, may you be happy. I just really liked that, the way she said that. So what I started doing is walking through airports and every person walking the other way, I'd look them in the eye and I'd think to myself, may you be happy, may you be happy, may you be happy, may you be happy. And sometimes they don't look you in the eye, but sometimes they look you in the eye, but when they see you hold their gaze, they look at the ground. But sometimes they look at you when you look at them and you give them a bit of an eye smile and you get that little zing, that little exchange of, energy you know it's pretty mm. cool but the first time i did it when i got to the other end of the airport i realized i had this light airy feeling inside me i never have and it's the total opposite of the dead dull dark feeling i always have inside me that i didn't even know i had because it's so normal and so that was a big epiphany for me just going through the airport and just you know like i said looking at people and, and thinking may you be happy because if I don't, it's almost like if I don't think, may you be happy, I'll be thinking, well, that's, I wouldn't be wearing that. Did you look at your hair before you left home this morning? You know what I mean? There is no middle ground. I'm either yeah. judging or I'm expressing gratitude, basically. And yeah. so, uh, and so anyway, so that, that was a big thing. And I think that helped a lot with the horses because some weird stuff's been happening for a couple of years now with horses at horse expos. Someone's got a horse, either at clinics or horse expos, but you know. I put a video on YouTube here a few months ago 
from a um, horse expo in New Zealand last year. And this lady had this warm blood dressage prospect or dressage horse that she was having trouble with. And it was all over the place, you know, her, on the ground. She was leading it and it was all over the place. And I said, here, just hand him over here and I'll show you what we can do to help that. And she handed me the lead rope and he just relaxed and come over and put his nose on my belly button sort of thing and just chilled out. And, uh, you know, it wasn't, I didn't do anything. And so and that's been happening. I wouldn't say it happens all the time. It's been happening more and more. And I really think they just feel a different energy in me than I had before. Yeah. Yep. There's no question in my mind about that. Oh, you know, there's no question in my mind about it either, but people have asked me, what, well, what did you, how did you do that? What did you do? And so when I put that video on YouTube and I, I said that I think what's going on here is not horse training. It's stuff I've done away from horses. And I had a lot of comments on YouTube like, well, what have you been doing? And so I did a, um, I did a YouTube video that I called change yourself to change your horse or something rather like that. And I basically told the story about the therapy and this and that and something else, you know, so. Mm -hmm. And you went on to study um, about the polyvagal theory and about trauma in horsemanship. Is that right? I wouldn't say I studied it, but, you know, for the last few years now, I've been really working on connection with horses. Last year, I, last, I'm, I'm big into manifesting. You're into mm -hmm. manifesting? Definitely. So it turns out I've been manifesting all my life without knowing I've been doing it, but now I know I can do it. But early in uh, early 2019, I thought, you know what? I've been to some pretty cool places to do to do clinics. You know, I've been all over North America, Australia, New Zealand, all over the UK, all over Western Europe. I've been to Kenya, been to South Africa. I want to go somewhere unlike any of those. I want to be asked to go somewhere unlike any of those places to do a clinic, which doesn't leave much, does it? You know, no. South America, I suppose, Asia, and the Middle East. That's probably it. And uh, I just put that thought out there and then just forgot about it. And about two months later, I got an email from the wife of the British ambassador to Morocco and said, would you like to come to Morocco and do some horse work? And I'm like, <laughs> I think that's what the doctor ordered. That's exotic enough for me. Yeah. So we went to Morocco and for a week last year, excuse me. <clears throat> and that was a pretty amazing trip. You know, we got to stay in the ambassador's residence all week and have the whole ambassador, you know, the diplomat life for a week, which was pretty cool. But I got to work with a number of barb stallions. So barb is a breed from the Iberian Peninsula. It's about 3000 years old, very old breed. And these, so I got to work with these barb stallions and they were all quite, uh, they weren't necessarily aggressive, but they bite, they strike a little bit, things like that. And um, I just had them turn loose with them. And all I did was work on communicating with them that I could see where their thoughts were. And these, it was just the craziest thing. These horses just end up following me around like little lambs. And it was, you know, it was, um, it was a magical thing. And it was, and, and, and it was something I hadn't, I hadn't done that kind of work like that before, but it was kind of the culmination of all the other stuff I've been doing. And I just got put in this place where I had the opportunity to work with all these horses that, I really didn't want to be terribly close to them initially because they were very, you know, pretty happy with their front feet and they're big, strong horses too. Mm. You know, they want to bite a bit and pretty happy with their front feet and all they've been done, you know, when, when they've been like that, they've all they've been done is hit. Yep. 
like don't do that sort of thing um and i knew that wasn't well not that i would want to do that anyway but i i know i i don't want to do that but if i get close to them that's going to happen and so i just turned them loose and started working with them from a distance just working on letting them know that i know where their thoughts are and it was it was <laughs> the results were absolutely amazing uh, we went to a towards the end of the week we went to a, a big uh, fresh festival of this horse festival in in um, morocco and i was with the british ambassador and and we ended up with i don't know he might be the governor of the area some big official dude and um the translator was telling him when he introduced me to him, the translator was telling him who I was <laughs> and from, I don't know any Arabic, but just the way the whole thing got explained to him that I'm some sort of mystical horse <laughs> or other from somewhere, just from this guy watching what happened with those stands. Cause it was, it was, yeah, it was like the horses read the script. It was, it was absolutely crazy. Mm. Um, yeah. So that was, yeah, so, so something for you to consider there. So because what's really interesting for me is that that's an ancient breed. So I have a friend of mine imported um, Spanish Mustangs into Australia from America. There's only a few hundred or maybe a thousand or so left in the world, and they're a very, very ancient breed as well. And I remember the first time I met um, the stallion, which is the, the sire of the mare that I've got now, and I get a sense around things. And my sense with this horse was, Oh my God, the, the ancient breed, he knew who he was and he wouldn't allow me into his space unless I was able to step up to knowing who I was. And so it's really interesting to me that you're in with this ancient breed who, who strikes and, and does this. My Spanish Mustang will pick you from a mile away. And if she senses any fear, if she senses any, um, that you're not present or anything like that, she will actually have a little bit of her way with you and you'll become her little toy um, that, that she just plays with and, and kind of bosses around and there's people who are terrified of her. But if you're actually confident and you know who you are, then you're able to work with her and she's an absolute dream. So it's really interesting to me that you learnt this lesson with an ancient breed because my feeling is when I'm around an ancient breed that they... They haven't been as domesticated as other breeds and it, 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 there's a different feeling when I'm around them. Definitely. I, and like at the time, I, I think when I, maybe that night or something I said to my wife, I said, when one of those barb stains looks at you, he looks into your soul. Yeah. You can't hide. That's this, my Spanish Mustang. She is, when I got her, I was nowhere close to where I needed to be. And I'm like, she's the horse who's going to take me to where I need to be. She's not the horse where I am. She's my future. And I have to make myself her human. And that's been my journey because the way she looks at you. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I've been around horses for a long time and I've never had horses look at me like that and, and not look at me as in pull of face or anything, just... I don't know, something mesmerizing about their gaze. It was crazy. And what was funny was where we were. So the place where I was, I was um, working with these horses is called, well, the acronym is SORIC. It's, it's the Royal Society for the Encouragement of Horses, Moroccan Royal Society for the Encouragement of Horses. And so it's inside the walls of an old casbah, which is a castle. And so the whole, you know, it's got these huge big castle walls around the front of it. You know, it looks like a palace or something. Or wow. We're in the back part of that, but, Across the street from where we were working with these horses was a mosque. 
and there were times like so that mosque would they'd have the call to prayer five times a day and uh, that call to prayer would come out of that mosque and just working with these horses and that that call to prayer when you hear that there's there's something there's something to that there's a vibe in there you get off that or something or other but yeah it was pretty cool um yeah, working with them in the, you know, that uh, that call to prayer would come out of the, the minaret of that mosque across the street. It was, yeah, it was pretty crazy. Wow. That's like a, because a call to prayer is like a calling to the gods, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, no, I, I, that, it was a, it was a, I'd say it was a spiritual experience working with those horses. And, and it was a gift too, because what I did with them that I hadn't ever done before has basically become my go-to now, like for everybody, like before you even start doing anything with your horse, I want you to do this. Mm. And it's just connecting with them. There's, you're not asking for anything. It's just connection. And then everything after that is just easy. And, and uh, yeah, it's, it's just been it's just crazy. And so do you, um, to, to be more present with horses, is there something you do before you go and be with a horse or is it just the, is it just who you are now in everyday life all the time? Uh, you know what, someone asked me that the other day and I'm thinking, no, I don't, but I probably should just, I mean, you know, I, I meditate and stuff like that, but not right before I go to the, anywhere near a horse and I probably should just pause and center myself a bit more before I go anywhere near him. Um, but you know, like the meditation practice that I started a number of years ago now and, and um, you know, that has been very, very helpful. You know, my clinics now these days, I, you know, first thing I do is like, is any, who, who of you guys meditates? And, you know, usually some people put their hands up and I said, has anybody here tried to meditate but can't? Everybody's hand goes up. Mm. And, you know, a big fan of an American philosopher named Wayne Dyer. Mm-hmm. And, um, one of the things he says is when you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. And all these people that say they can't meditate, I go, I go around and ask them, so why do you think you can't meditate? And they go, oh, I can't keep my mind still. That's The big thing is they, I just can't quiet my mind down. I just can't stop my mind from jumping around all over the place. And I go around and that's basically what everybody says. And then I said, well, when you meditate, what's, what will happen is you will sit down and say you're supposed to be focusing on your breathing. You're going, okay, my breath's going in my nose, my chest is filling, and then the air's going out of my lungs. I wonder what's for dinner. Oh, we could have chicken. No, we had chicken last night. I like chicken. Hey, I had chicken when I was a kid. What was the name of that kid, that chicken that my grandma had when I was a kid? I used to love grandma's cookies too. Oh, grandpa, I, what did grandpa do for a living? I think he was a publisher. I wonder, wonder what you have to do to become a publisher. And you just have this long, rambling mental conversation. And yeah. I said, what did Grandpa do to be a publisher? And then, oh, oh, hang on, I'm supposed to be focusing on my breathing. And everybody's nodding like, yeah, that's what happens to me. And I go, that is meditating. You got to the point where you realized you weren't present. You went, oh, I'm supposed to be breathing. And as Eckhart Tolle says, when you realize you're not present, you are present. You have to be present to realize you're not present. Yeah. And so I tell everybody, so what? the reason you gave up meditating because you said you couldn't do it is meditating. You were getting it right, but you had a different expectation of the outcome. You think you're supposed to think about nothing. I said, if any of you people are dressage riders, dressage is all about transitions. 
Meditating is about transitions. You'll have control of what you're thinking about and then your mind will take control and then you'll get that control, that transition that back to where you are telling your mind what to think about. And then it will run away with you and you make that transition back. And it's just a lot of transitions. And everybody's mm. like, oh, because they all think they can't meditate. They all, you know, self-judgment. I can't meditate. I must be, my mind is, and, and what I want them to realize is, hey, I can meditate. I have meditated. I just had a different expectation of what the outcome was supposed to be. That is so helpful. That is, that is one of the most helpful things I think I've ever heard about meditating. So thank you. I know a lot of people. Well, are I've got a better one for that. you. Yeah. There's a book I'm listening to right now called Mind Hacking. Mm-hmm. And it's a, it's a guy, he's a, like a computer guy. Okay. He's not a spiritual guy. And his, his book is about mind hacking. And what he's basically done, he's taken all the woo-woo out of all the all meditation and all that sort of stuff, and he's just given it a funny name. Even like you think about like, say, chakra meditation, where you'll focus on one of your chakras. He does that, but he, call, he calls it Jedi mind training or whatever. And he says, I want you to think about the point right between your eyebrows. I want to, we're going to call that the Darth Vader one or whatever. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But he's having you focus on your third eye chakra without even calling it that because that would weird some people out. But one of the things he does, so he doesn't call meditating meditating, he calls it concentration training. And he wants you to focus on something, you know, whether it's your breathing or your third eye or whatever. And he says, the game is give yourself one point for every time you notice you're not thinking about what you're supposed to be thinking about. So instead of when you... When you get distracted, uh, thinking, oh, God, I'm distracted. I should be thinking about my breathing. You go, one point for me. I just yes. caught myself. And it, it, may, it turns into a game. And, you know, the, you might meditate for 10 minutes and have one, get one point. Mm-hmm. So you only, only realise that you will, you know, you, you probably were off on a tangent with your grandma's cookies or something rather for 10 minutes without knowing it. Yeah. But the next day, then you catch yourself twice and you catch yourself three times. And it's a little bit like that judgmental thought thing. When you become aware of those thoughts, you can reframe them. Mm. And I just, when I was listening to this book recently, I'm like, that's the best way of talking about meditation I've ever heard is give yourself a point every time you catch yourself um, wandering off. Yeah, because it's like positive reinforcement too. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Yeah, and he's really big on positive reinforcement. Like, the mind, what do you call it, mind hacking, but the mental things he has you do, he says, make sure that you give yourself a reward. Mm. Like if you like a cup of coffee or whatever in the morning or whatever, do you do your mind, what he calls mind hacking or your concentration training. And when you get it right, give yourself the reward. Mm-hmm. And there'll be things you normally give yourself, whether it's a bowl of ice cream or whatever it is. Um, but, Try to be disciplined enough to not give it to yourself if you didn't do the work. And so yeah. it has a, has a reward system to it. Yeah, it, was, it was very interesting, but I, I thought that was the best way of describing what happens when you're meditating, mm-hmm. you know, by giving, by giving them a, um, you know, uh, keeping, keeping, keeping track keeping because score, just like yeah. counting judgmental thoughts, you don't, you forget to do it. But then the more you do it, the more you realise where your thoughts are and then the more you do it. And this is, this is kind of the same way. So, yeah, I thought it was pretty cool. This episode is brought to you by the Natural Horse Spray. Are you inundated with flies and biting insects? To 
Does your horse suffer from Queensland itch? If so, head on over to EdenRiverEquestrian.com to purchase your horse some natural and ethical relief from biting insects and itch. There are two blends there to choose from. The Kiowa blend is for insect repelling and the Gypsy blend may heal Queensland or sweet itch on your horse and will also repel insects. That's EdenRiverEquestrian.com and if you use the code Come Along for the Ride, that's all lowercase and one word, Come Along for the Ride, you will receive 15% off your order. Because a lot of times, especially being a woman, if you're emotionally eating, it's okay if you've got the stash and you go for one cookie. Um, if you then go, if you then you go, you know, I'm going to have three or four more, and this is how we beat ourselves up. Once you realise you're doing it, you can stop. You know, you don't have to go. Well, everything I'm doing is blown. I've haven't got enough scores on this, so I'm no good at this today, and I'm just going to let it go, and I'll start again next week. Um, we really are hard on ourselves as humans, um, no matter what it is, whether it's with our training, whether it's with meditating, whether it's with anything, we really have this way of beating ourselves up. But it's all right to stop midway through a binge of any kind of putting ourselves down of any, in any way and just going, oh, I can stop now. I can start now. I can stop that now and I can choose this now. And in every moment we get that choice. We don't have to write off a whole day or a whole week and then say it doesn't matter, I'll start Monday. Most certainly. And that, I think, you know, like I said, I think with the judgmental thought things, when you get good at that, then if something like what you just talked about happened, you don't have to beat yourself up over it. Mm. You know, it's like that guilt versus shame thing. You go, okay, I had a couple more bickies than I should have done or I was planning to or whatever, but next time I can do better. But you don't, it doesn't just go on and on and on and on with you for the next day. Or mm. so. Absolutely. And we can do the same in horse training. We're like, oh, that didn't work. Okay. I noticed that didn't yeah, work. I'm going to step back. I'm going to think about it and I'm going to change yeah, it. See, that's the thing for me, Tracy, uh, not having any emotions has really helped me train horses mm. because I get frustrated if they don't get it right. I'm like, okay, we'll just try again tomorrow or try a different thing or whatever. And, and um, yeah, so not having emotions is, is helpful that way. But <laughs> once you start having them, you don't want to, not ever have them again but that whole judgmental thought thing you know about beating yourselves up so before so robin my wife robin and i were both on the australian team for the world equestrian games in 2018 and uh we enlisted the help of a mental coach from new zealand so we have a friend from new zealand named jane pike and she is a horse riding mental coach mostly she she mindset coach is what she's mm -hmm. mostly she helps people with um uh, fear-based stuff but she does help people with competition stuff as well and, and I hadn't been training horses for the previous four years and so I hadn't been competing very much and luckily for us you know there's a lot of other Australians who are uh, better at the reining than than I am but they just couldn't you know qualifying for the water question games is a campaign it takes a lot of money takes a lot of time takes the right horse and you know a lot of guys just couldn't get it done and so you know I was lucky enough to to be on the team but I hadn't been competing much for the last four years and when I was competing I wasn't the best or anything and so we enlisted Jane to help us out and one of the things she did during the year was we did like a Skype call and she asked me a lot of questions and then she made me up an audio tape to listen to she said you have to listen to this with stereo headphones and so it was you know it was an mp3 she sent me 
And so I'd listened to it. And for the first 10 minutes, it's the same Jane in either ear. She's just chatting away. Jane's very light and airy and just chatty, you know. She's telling me all these things in this audio thing. And then about 10 minutes in, one Jane in one ear keeps talking, but another Jane shows up in the other ear. And then it goes on for another 25 minutes after that with these two different Janes. And you can't listen to both of them. You can only listen to one of them. And so my homework was to listen to this thing a lot. There was other things we did too. But, and then Jane came to the World of Question Games with us. And when I competed there in the first round, so the first round is the team medal competition. So you're, the, the whole team score gets added up and that's where the team medals are given out. And when we got there, our, our chef, what's called the chef de quip, which is basically your, your team coach, uh, his name is Rodney Peachy, he's from Sydney. And, and Rodney said, so what do you think you and Robin can mark on score on these two horses? You know, if everything goes right. And I said, ah, probably about a two, seven, and a half is what would probably pull us both up. Everything going right. Because Rodney's trying to figure out, based on previous years, will we be in running for a medal sort of thing. And um, one of the other team members is my mate from Texas that I bought the horse off that I was talking about. And his sister was the other his sister was the other one. So it was the, the two of them and, and my wife and I. And um, the first round, I was a 217. Robin was a 218. So we did about as good as we could. And it was like being in the zone. I've never been that relaxed competing before. And this is the world of question games. My bum cheeks are supposed to be clamped so tight. It's not funny, you know. Mm. And it just, I was just in the flow and it was just the weirdest sensation. And they have, so they have 20 horses in that individual finals and they take 15 from that first team medal round and then they take the next 20 and they go again and then they take the top five out of that to go with the other 15 to go to the, the finals and we made the, that second round the semi-finals which we never thought we would mm-hmm. and so i go in there and i mark a 220 and robin marks a 220 and a half so we i'm three points higher than i was before she's two and a half points higher than she was before our personal best by far this is the world of question games. I'm, this is supposed to be the place where you choke. Yeah, not um, peak. Wow. And and I'm not physically practised. You know what I mean? I haven't been doing this day in, day out for the last four years. Mm-hmm. And it was just the weirdest thing like it. I've never been that good, ever. And then I got to think, well, that was, it was the weirdest sensation because I never felt that relaxed competing before, even in a little show. And I was just in the zone and, and something was different and I couldn't figure out what was different. And then I realized, oh my goodness, that little voice in the back of my head that always says, who do you think you are? You suck. You're not good enough. People are going to laugh at you. Blah, 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 Wasn't there, but I've never known it was there. It's, it's never been conscious that it was there yeah. until it wasn't there. And when it wasn't there, the difference was night and day. And so that's, you know, that's that, that whole subconscious judgment thing, you know, if you, you do something and you think to yourself immediately, oh, you're so stupid, and go on with it. You don't even realise you said it. You don't even realise like you thought it to yourself and it gets stuck in there. You know, you don't even know it's there. And so that's why I think that one of the biggest things I learnt that year of therapy was the whole just counting judgmental thoughts and becoming aware of them and then the ones that are about you, reframe them. Mm. Basically from shame to guilt sort of thing and um, I, th- I think that's a game for me that's a game changer that's the most one of the most amazing thing that's ever happened to me and what what doing all of that does is it brings you to the present moment it's all it does it gives you the gift of this moment because um, those thoughts and 
yeah that those thoughts and things and all those judgments that are running are just there to keep you from this moment wow that is amazing i um i was listening to a podcast elisa camplin alicia camplin the um she was a skier where they do the high ramp things and flip around in the air aerial there we go aerial skier and she was saying that um 80 of the work that she does is in her mind mm, yep. so um because I, it's I, I definitely mm, i definitely believe that yeah because it's I, like really I dangerous to go and flip every day off an actual um right. ski jump so she said you know 80 percent of it is that we actually go into our own mind simulations of doing it yeah, I mean, you know, that's that's part of it too. Um, practicing that, practicing that stuff mentally. But I think for me, the biggest part was it wasn't the, the mental practice of what I was going to do. It was getting rid of that subconscious self-judgment, self-loathing. You know, you name mm, it, whatever the it is. You know. Voice that told you you couldn't. Yeah, that I didn't even know was there. You know, because there's the conscious voice that you know I've never competed. In the, the sport that I competed in was raining. I've never gone and shown a horse that I thought, well, this is not going to work. On a conscious level, you just don't take him to the horse show. You have mm -hmm. the horse ready to go. You're ready to go. You go do your thing. Um, consciously, there's that. But I realize now that unconsciously has been all that other that other stuff that's been holding me back. And it's what's funny now is I, I think that's probably going to be my, my last competition. I really don't have the desire for it anymore. But what's funny is... I think now I could be way better at it than I ever was, but now that I've got to that point, I don't have the desire to do it. So it's kind I of see that all the time. I, I see that in a lot of people. Yeah. Once they have the ability, they, they lose the, the drive to have to do it because there's nobody you need to prove anything to. There's just you and your horse in that moment, and that's the, that is the gift. It's not the reward at the end of it. That is the gift. Yeah, these, these days I think helping horses overcome past trauma might be my competing my you know the thing is like whoa that just gives me the greatest satisfaction seeing that change in that horse and it might not be much to the naked eye but i can tell the difference you know mm. and tell us a bit more about um because i've i've seen a lot around where people are throwing around the old polyvagal theory now and it's a fantastic mm. one by the way and how much does that um, the influence of that kind of information, first of all, what is it and how it affects how you train now and what it is you do for horses? Uh, well, it, in effect, I'll, before I go into what polyvagal theory is, I'll just say that it makes me understand the training that I've been doing a bit more. You know, I always come at the science from the back end. I figure stuff out and then I, then I learn the science about why, why it worked. Mm -hmm. So polyvagal theory... You know, I've always thought that there's only two branches of the, the autonomic nervous system, the sympathetic nervous system, which is your fight or flight, which is basically the accelerator. And then there's the parasympathetic nervous system, which is like your rest and relaxation state, which is basically your break. And Peter Levine's polyvagal theory says that there's two types of break. There's one accelerator, your, your sympathetic nervous system, but there's two parts to the parasympathetic nervous system. There is the dorsal vagal complex and that is it's like the handbrake in a car mm -hmm. and there is the ventral vagal complex which is 
social engagement complex. So that break, that, that break comes on when you're in a social situation where you feel comfortable in, okay? Mm-hmm. You're, not, you're not anxious. You're not wanting to run away. You're not wanting to fight. You're not wanting to flight. Um, and, but the, the dorsal one, the, the, the dorsal break, which is a bit like a, a handbrake in a car, I had to think when I said handbrake then, because in America, if you said handbrake, they wouldn't know what you're talking about. It's an emergency <laughs> break over here, so I could have think I'm talking Australian. Well, both. Um, I'm 50-50. Lots oh, of yeah. Americans listen. So there you go. You've got both now, emergency break yeah. and handbrake. Um, so it's like the handbrake in the car. Now, when should you put the handbrake on in the car? When you're already stopped. Yeah, and you're already stopped. Very good. So the <laughs> ding, <laughs> five points for Tracy. Currently, we have Tracy on five and everybody else on zero. Um, so the, when a horse is standing around grazing or dozing or whatever, that dorsal breaks on. Okay? Mm-hmm. Dorsal breaks all about immobilization. So when a horse is standing around immobile, that break is on lightly. But if something happens and they get worried, but there's no social connection to it, then it comes that break comes on hard so a lot of the a lot of the the um a lot of the training we i've done in the past has an element of that that handbrake in having them stand still now i think there's then there's there's different levels of it because you can have a, a little bit of that break a lot of that break i think both of those breaks you can have part of one on and part of the other one on you think about really old school outback horsemen sort of thing, you know, just to train a horse, they tie it to a big post and then put hobbles on them and take a, you know, a bag and just whack them all over the bag till they, and the end result was you wave the bag around, they don't move. Okay. Mm-hmm. That would be nothing but dorsal break. Okay. That's just immobilization. That's just freeze. That's just flooding. Mm-hmm. Okay. But then if you think about, uh, the next step down from there would be, let's say you don't tie the horse up, you've got him on a lead rope and you've got the bag and you start to wave it around towards him and he starts to run around. Mm-hmm. Okay, You wave the bag around, you keep waving it around and at some point in time he comes to a stop and as soon as he stops, you stop waving the bag. He stops because of that dorsal brake coming on, that freeze thing coming on, but the fact you took it away the instant that he stopped tells you or tells him you are listening somewhat and so i think there's a little bit of tiny little bit of connection or that that um ventral break comes on there now if you go one step from that you could have the bag in your right hand the lead rope in your left hand and you bring the bag up towards the horse and wave it around and he runs around and while he's running around the instant he slows down slightly you take the bag away okay so that's a little more social stuff a little less of the emergency break but there's still some you know quite a bit of it there but then what you could do is let's say you've got the bag in one hand lead rope in the other hand you approach the horse and you go to move the bag and he starts to run away and as he moves away you take the bag away immediately mm-hmm. so you take it away while he's moving and then he'll come to a stop but he won't come to a stop because of the emergency break the handbrake he just comes to a stop but he also knows that you saw the instant he got worried mm-hmm Okay, so that's a little less of one break and more of the social break. Yeah. Now, you go one step further from that, you have the lead rope in one hand, you've got the bag in the other hand, you go to pick the bag up towards him and you notice his head raises half an inch. If you stop 
right there. You freeze. Keep the bag exactly where it is and watch him really intently and wait for him to blink, lower his head, move an ear, whatever. And then you take that bag away right there. That's what the therapist, or not the therapist, the scientists call cat H. You ever heard of cat H? Not that one, no. Uh, C-A-T, it's an acronym. The, la- the T is training. It's not conversional association therapy. I can't remember what it is. Uh, 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 conversional association training. It was originally started for um, animals with uh, a lot of fear response, like fearful dogs and aggressive dogs and stuff. But the, the H is horse, so cat for horses. Mm-hmm. Conversional, uh, I, I forget what it's called. But anyway, that's what you do is you stay, it's about staying below threshold, but what you do is you wait for something to get better before you take it away. So it's very, 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 very light. All that's negative reinforcement. It's very light negative reinforcement. Mm. And so that one, you are not using any of the, the, the dorsal break, that emergency break. You're only using the social connection break. And in the and all of these these things I just sent to you, there's six of my thing, five of them I just said. Mm-hmm. In the end, the horse will stand still, and you can wave the bag all over him. One of them is completely shut down. He's got one brake. He's got the dorsal brake on, the emergency brake on fully. The ones in the middle, have, it's, I think it's partly emergency brake, partly social brake, and then the one at the end, it'll just be completely social brake. And I think that if you start out that way with that sort of thing there's so much less training you have to do because anytime you engage you're engaging that emergency break you know have a bit of that freeze going on it comes out later on as as rigidity in your horse and a brace in your horse and we spend so much time as horsemen trying to get all the brace out of our horses well what i realize now is our first interactions were putting a brace in and we didn't even know we we're putting in there and then we get good enough to get the brace out of them and pat ourselves in the back and go, hey, we're really good at getting the brace out of horses. They don't have braces in them. We put the braces in them. Yes. You know, and that's, and that's so that whole scenario there was just talking about, say, on the subject of, say, desensitizing. Mm-hmm. Okay. You can do it from one end to the other. And what I really like about polyvagal theory is it's non judgmental. Like if someone does it so the emergency breaks all the way on, you just say, okay, well, the way he's doing it, the emergency breaks all the way on. Yeah. The way this guy over here is doing it, the social engagement breaks all the way on. You've got to put the brakes on. You know, if we're going to be safe around horses, they can't be just running over us and doing strange stuff. So, you know, we do have to apply the brakes and how you apply the brakes will determine a lot of stuff. Mm. And it also um, goes back to that, are you listening? You know. Well, yeah, it goes back to are you listening? But once you, once I understood exactly how those breaks worked, like that, then I was like, oh, that's why. That's why what I'm doing because what I'm doing now is like the the cat H thing, um, and that's why it works so well because you're not putting that that bit of brace in there. And I was thinking about it. I know performance horse trainers who are quite hard on their horses. But their horses go around with a smile on their face. Their ears are up, they're licking and chewing, their eyes are blinking, their ears are working, and there's no social engagement in that, what, what appears to be social engagement with them. But I really believe that the whole listening thing 
if you're a really good horse trainer and you ask for tiny little things and release when you get that slight change, you're telling them, horse, I am so aware of little stuff. Mm. Does that make sense there? But what I've been doing lately a lot under saddle is if I ask for something, let's just say steering, very basic, riding around, and I just pick up my inside rein to steer. So it was a young horse. So I'm teaching the horse to steer. Pick up on that rein with very little pressure. I'm like, just take the slack at it slightly and just hold it there and wait. And if the ear flicks in that direction, I'll just drop it mm. before we worry about any sort of physical response. And I'll tell you what, after a while, you pick up that rein, the ear comes, the eye comes, their mind comes, their feet come, and they steer perfectly well like they've been steering all their life. Yeah. And it's just about that. And it's just being aware of, of all those little things. You know, I, don't, I think some people in the horse world, if other people don't do what they do, um, they're very judgmental. Like, I, believe me, I've got a lot of flack from people over the years. Um, but if you just look at it in, like, like talking about quadrants, you know, like positive reinforcement, negative reinforcement, positive punishment, negative punishment, all that, a lot of people are like, you've got to be in a certain quadrant. Whereas I really these days don't think it matters what quadrant you're in. It matters what brake you use. Mm. That's it. It doesn't matter what quadrant you're in. Now, positive reinforcement doesn't use any emergency brake. Okay. It's all social engagement. Okay. But you can do a lot of that uh, not doing positive reinforcement. Mm. So, I, so I, don't really, I really don't think it doesn't, it doesn't matter what quadrant you're in. It matters what brake you're engaging, which brake's on. Yeah. That's, that's the, for me these days, that's the, that's the thing I'm looking for is, is that are you causing that dorsal brake to come on or is the only brakes you've got the ventral break and that's all that connection that's that social engagement break mm. when you um when you talk about those things i can't stop um thinking about the calming signals so if you um anna blake and rachel Draysma, two people that i've interviewed on this podcast as well um rachel was one of the ones who turned it into science and anna was one of the ones who was kind of doing it at the same time not really knowing what she was doing um they are actually the calming signals are exactly what you're talking about by listening so they're the absolute minute tiny little things that the horses are trying to tell us from the moment they first sense us coming into you know the the car driving up or every time my front door opens because my horses are at my house with me you know every time they're if you can start reading from that moment of first concept of what it is they're trying to tell you then and show them that you're listening from those moments, from the calming signals that they, they're giving you, then the whole relationship changes as well. So it's... it's and the reason, the reason it changes is because you're engaging that social break from the beginning. Exactly, exactly. You don't need the other break. You know, yeah. the breaks are on. Yeah, so the calming mm-hmm. signal is showing you what to look for early to keep them in, the, in, the, in that break that you're talking about. Yeah, but you just have to be so present to do it. And... Exactly. You know, if you think about, let's say five years ago, when I first got Sherlock's the name of that horse that my wife bought. When I bought Sherlock five years ago, I was right. What I was doing was right mm-hmm. for me because mm-hmm. it worked. Okay. It was effective. The horses all seemed to be good with it, you know. Um, and at the time, I didn't think, 
I don't need to do anything else because it works. People like it. The horses like it. I'm right. Even it's five years later and I look at things completely differently than I did five years ago. And so now I realize I don't judge anybody where they're at because where you at, where you are at, you're right. I mean, that's your truth. That's, that's, you're doing, you know, you're all doing, everybody's doing the best they can with the knowledge they have. And so where somebody is at is the sum total of every experience I've ever had. So they're right. Yeah, I agree. You know, so, so I definitely am not one to say somebody else is doing it wrong um, at this point in time. And I'm getting better. It's a journey, but I'm getting better at not being offended by the judgment of others to where they think they're doing it right and I'm doing it wrong. Mm, yeah. You, do, you know, when you get... When you get in the public eye quite a bit, um, you you know you get a lot of positive feedback, but you also get quite a bit of negative feedback too. And some of it's some of it's warranted. I mean, I think I've learned a lot over the use of my detractors, like you know, uh, people commenting things on my YouTube channel. And you get an, you get enough of one of the same you know the same feedback from different people, and it makes you start to think, hmm. Maybe there's something to that. You know what I mean? And so it's hard sorting the wheat from the chaff sort of thing, figuring out, is this just a miserable person who's got nothing better to do than go on social media and pick on everybody? Or is there some merit to that? And so it, it takes a bit of sorting through, but I've always, you've got to read the comments and then you've got to think, is there something in that familiar? Is that just a reflection of where they're at? And you, I mean, usually the ones you can you can tell the ones that are really a reflection of where they're at because it's usually quite nasty but um yeah absolutely and, had, and it's the ones that kind of get you squirming in your seat and you read it and you think oh that's not right but your whole body is is having a reaction to it for me oh, personally yeah. that's my barometer it's like okay they are right and I, i'm gonna need to look at that mm. yeah when i was um oh i don't know how many years ago it was but i had about had about four and a half million views on my YouTube channel before either A, I discovered the delete, the delete button to delete comments, or B, YouTube decided to put a delete button in there, but I'd never seen it before that. And uh, that helped me a great deal because I used to go to bed at night with the, the vile comments from people um, in my head, and that'll eat you alive. But yeah. uh, nowadays I just, you know, I check the YouTube comments every day and I, if I don't particularly like the comment i'll just go delete may nice. you be happy <laughs> um, and, it, and it's gone it doesn't it doesn't sit in there it doesn't fester inside you like a wound sort of thing yeah but, um when yeah, you get it's, it's, it's the whole so many views you can't like it, it all can't be positive so yeah you have to learn to decipher very fast yeah decipher and also not take the nasty stuff to heart too yeah you know? exactly yeah um you know no one you know, this whole, you know, everything that's happened to me, I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm not a great planner. I'm just a, a follower of my nose. And uh, none of what's going on with me was ever, this was never planned. It wasn't because I had someone on a podcast here a while ago. They're like, it's called horse business or something or other. And he was asking me the formula to get where I've got to. I go, follow your nose. That's yeah. it. I said, there's never been a business plan. When I started putting YouTube videos up, it wasn't, Okay, if 
I put these YouTube videos up, people will want more. And then I can have this subscription thing. I can charge you for it. It was just helping people with what I knew. And it's not, you know, it's not, this is the way to do it. This is the way I found can be helpful. I've had a lot of people say, I have this problem. I'll show you how I would work through that problem. Um, and when I first started putting YouTube videos up, when you first have a YouTube channel and you can't put videos more than 10 minutes long, well, at least it was back then. I don't know about now, but I don't think they want three hours of your cat walking on the piano or something, you know, so yep. um, you can't have videos more than 10 minutes long. And so I was putting videos up to 10 minutes on there and then people wanted more. And so then I started, you know, I was taking in a lot of problem horses at the time. So I started the first day I got a problem horse and came in, I'd video the first day, the second day, the third day. And I started up an online video subscription thing that I charge people for. And um, I only did that because of the demand, not because I went, Oh, I'm going to do this. It's going to make me some money or whatever. Yeah. And, um, and then after that, I realized on the analytics on YouTube that people don't watch more than about three or four minutes. So then I really started cutting the YouTube videos down much shorter, get in, make a point, get out. Cause you really can't teach somebody something in four minutes. You can just plant a seed. And so a lot of the most common YouTube video comment I get is you didn't tell me anything. <laughs> well, I did. You just weren't listening. But anyway, I, hopefully I planted a seed in there for something else. Yeah. Yeah. And because again, cause you're getting so many people watching and every single one of those people are on a different level in their own um, personal journey and horsemanship journey. So whether or not they can hear you just depends on exactly where they're at and they may not be ready for it yet. Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, you, I mean you've got to be ready for this stuff. I mean, I, I, you know, I was just lucky that everything happened the way it did. So by the, and, and I don't know, maybe these opportunities have shown up time and time again. I just wasn't ready for it. So I didn't even see them. I don't even remember them. Mm. You know, they've probably been there all along and I wasn't ready for them. But when, when I was ready for them, they showed up. So I'm pretty grateful for that. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and asking as well and, and thinking, you know, just the simple thought, or there must be another way, you know, that itself can open up such massive doors and changes in people's lives. But um, what really excites me is that I interviewed Sarah Schlote, who does the trauma and trauma informed horsemanship about a year ago. And um, whilst it got a, huge amount of listens it's one of my most downloaded podcasts um you still didn't see it spoken about outside of that trauma and therapy um wheelhouse it was it was very much the people who were listening to it were kind of more trauma people and it's so um encouraging and fantastic that now somebody like yourself who is a um, horse trainer of so many years who's we are actually talking all about the same thing Um, you know we can talk about the quadrants of the positive reinforcement and the science side plus the polyvagal theory plus training horses it's all coming together and that's what excites me so much about um where the horse world is going at the moment it's um it's amazing and you know i keep seeing in my head all the people that i want to put in the one room together one day and and do a big conference because if if all of these people got together with all of their different um ideas and skill sets on certain areas it's like i think if we got all those people in the one room together then the magic that would happen and the the shift forward and the move that we could make in the horsemanship world would be quite extraordinary. 
So it's great to see that you're so open and receptive to not just how to get a horse to do something, but so much more. Yeah, well, I, you know, I was lucky I had a horse that came along that was very shut down, but it was actually him that made me realise how shut down I was. Mm. You know, I, you know, I didn't even think I was, I didn't even, I didn't think I realised I was, I was shut down. I ne never really thought about it because, you know, as you said, growing up as we did in Australia, emotions or feelings aren't, aren't talked about. And, and that's that social engagement break. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm shut down because my, my dorsal break's been on. I, you know, have, have you ever read, you probably have, um, Waking the Tiger? Yeah. By Peter Living. Yeah. When I read that and he talks about childhood surgeries and that's one of the things that can create a lot of trauma that you don't know it's from. And, and um, yeah, talking to Sarah the other day, she, um, you know, I, I knew I, I knew I had um, uh, pneumonia when I was quite young a number of times, and but I didn't know if I was hospitalised or whatever. And so I was when after I saw so Sarah, you just talked about, I did a podcast with her here recently, and after that podcast, we talked after we stopped the podcast, and um, I was telling her about that, and she said, "Well, ask ask your mum exactly what happened." So I rang mum up the other day, and I said, "So how many times did I have pneumonia when I was young?" And she said, uh, four. And I'm like, did I ever spend any time in hospital? She goes, oh, yeah. I'm like, how old was I when I had pneumonia the first time? And she said, mm, three weeks, uh, three months old. I'm like, was I in hospital? She goes, oh, yeah, you spent a week in hospital. And the next time was when I was 11 months old. And so these things, I think, are some of the things that happened that put me in, in uh, shutdown mode. Yeah, they made you who you were because that goes all to your attachment style. If you were three, yeah. you know, you're yeah. a week in hospital without your mother. Yep. Yeah, that, that changes the entire way you see the world and how you attach to things massively. And, so. and, yeah, and, then, and then you have, um, you know, and then, and then you have, so that's your baseline that, that, that freeze thing. So you don't, you know, when things go bad, you don't have fight or flight. You have that, that freeze stuff going on. Yeah. And so then, you know, later on, you know, you have other experiences and when those things happen, then your default is freezing and you just get really, really good at it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and then it affects everything you do. And then being a, a man or a male, you know, you're supposed to be tough, but when you grow up and freeze mode is your default, then you have all this self-judgment about, well, I'm, you know, I'm not tough, I'm scared, you know, mm. all that sort of thing. And it, it's almost the world's hugest relief to find out that, hey, it's stuff that happened. It's, it wasn't a con that wasn't a conscious choice. Hey, I'm going to be like this. And I think, you, you know, you spend all your life thinking about all the things you, you did, not wrong, but didn't do the way a man's supposed to do it, you know what I mean? Yep, yep. And all that self-loathing and self-judgment stuff that comes from all that. And it's almost a big relief to find out where it came from. And I, and I, I knew there was some of that in there, but, uh, but it wasn't until I was just talking to mum last week that I found out about how early those hospitalizations were. And then I talked to Sarah about that. She goes, oh, yeah, that's, that's big time trauma. Um, and so, yeah, so now I'm, and I've been trying to unravel that for a while. I've done several um, 
what would you call them uh out of the box things to to work on those um and i told sarah about one of them the other day and she goes oh you've done that no that's cool so i i went last year i went to uh oh actually tell you what i did in do you have time to hear what i did in in february last year sure do um have you ever heard of a guy named dave asprey the bulletproof coffee guy i know of bullet yeah yeah i have yeah bulletproof coffee yes so he's got a book called game changers and so he has a podcast and he interviews all these game changing people from different things spiritual people business people motivational people all sorts of things and he interviews them at the end of the interview he asks them okay what three things what three bits of advice do you have everybody like the three most important pieces of advice you could give everybody and he interviewed three or four hundred people for a couple of years and then took all of their their answers those to those three questions and condensed them all into this book called game changes and each chapter is one is a common denominator one of these things and like the first chapter is meditation practice everybody says got a meditation practice but partway through the book, he's talking about a um, doctor in Silicon Valley that does, he's doing groundbreaking stuff with stem cells. And what he can do is you'll go in there and he'll pull fat out of your body somewhere, spin the stem cells off and inject them into your uh, joints or whatever, you know, for sporting injuries. But something else he'll do, he will pull your fat off you spin the stem cells off and inject them into your vagus nerve and it gives you a complete emotional reset back to factory settings what what so i've spent a year doing therapy at this point in time nothing's happened and i'm in australia i was in victoria in january 2019 and i'm driving from one clinic to the other and i'm listening to this audio book and that comes in i'm like what <laughs> just like you said what? <laughs> and so i got back from that trip and i looked him up we happen to live in silicon valley so i track this guy down and he has a company called bio reset medical and they, that's what they do all that sort of stuff so i made a, a appointment to have a phone consult with him and i talked to him for an hour and he said so what that procedure is called is a stellate ganglion block but based on what you've told me we're not going to do that with you we'll do something else with you okay so i made an appointment i went in there and i spent an hour in his office my wife and i spent an hour in his office talking to him fascinating guy have you ever seen the tv show house yes okay so hbo is making a tv show like that a series based on this guy oh wow so we're we're, we're having this meeting and his phone rings and he looks at it and he goes excuse me one minute i'll be back i just got to take this he goes out in the hallway and i can hear him talking it seems like he's talking about tv shows he must be talking to his son or his wife i don't know and he comes back in and sits down and goes oh sorry about that He's got this funny look on his face. And I said, uh, what was it all about? And he said, oh, HBO is making a series like House, but it's based around me. Wow. But I've just been told that my character is a sociopath. Oh. And I'm sitting here wondering, am I a sociopath? <laughs> <laughs> Which is quite funny. Um so we had this chat and then he sent me down the hall and they, a nurse hooked me up to an IV of something called NAD. Do you know what NAD is? Nope. NAD is a cofactor. Uh, you're born with a certain amount of it in your body. It depletes as you age. And uh, drinking depletes it. And I used to be like a three beer a day drinker. Mm-hmm. Don't drink anymore. Uh, and I didn't, I didn't give up drinking. 
I just didn't feel the need anymore. I, I did the same. Did the same. My body just went, no, we're done. Just yeah. didn't ever and haven't um, So I'm sorry, I'm trying to look up NAD here. Um, so NAD is a cofactor. Mm-hmm. And so I'll tell you what it, the real word for it is. I can't find it. It's a long word. Here we go. Nicotidamide adenine something. Yeah. Oh, that one. <laughs> that one, yeah. It's central to metabolism, actually. Found in all living cells. Um, but apparently it depletes as you age. And so they put me on an IV of that. And I spent four and a half hours on this IV of this thing. Um, and then after I got done with that, then he had a, a Qigong energy healer come in the room with me and she hooked me up to an infusion of ketamine and gave me a psychedelic trip. Wow. And if you look up ketamine these days, they use it for depression. They treat depression with it. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so I had this, and I've never done any psychedelics, so I haven't, you know, I'm pretty straight that way, so I had no idea what to expect. But we, part of the hour-long meeting was about setting your intention for this thing. So apparently when you do psychedelics as a therapeutic thing, you've got to go in it with a certain intention, uh, those Definitely. sorts of things. You never run blind. I've listened to um, Tim Ferriss is a bit of a he's, he's a podcaster as well and an amazing yep. businessman in America, and he talks a lot about it, and that's one of the things they all say. Yeah, so we so we did the, the ketamine, and it's supposed to take about 45 minutes, took about 22 minutes, and it felt like about two minutes, and it was just a very, very bright, vivid dream, like the brightest colours, and it was very kaleidoscopic, and I thought I was going to see the face of God, face my fears, whatever. Mm-hmm. Didn't happen. It was a bit of a letdown. It was just like a really good dream, but it was like when I was done, I was like, oh, is that it? I thought something was going to happen. And so you're supposed to go offline for eight hours and the next day, eight hours later, boom, your emotions are supposed to kick in back to factory settings. So the next morning I got up, so that was about four o'clock in the afternoon. Next morning I got up, didn't feel any different. And I had to leave the next afternoon about three o'clock to go to the airport to fly to Washington State to present at a horse expo the next day. And I was sitting in San Jose Airport about three o'clock in the afternoon and all of a sudden, boom it was like in remember in the scene in alien with sigourney weaver where that thing comes out of her stomach yes it was like that and it started in my heart went boom and then it went down into my abdomen and swirled around down there and there's nothing i'd ever felt before and so that was the start of having feelings um you know i'd i'd be talking to someone and they'd say something and i get these sensations in there um horse like that at that horse expo you know i'd be working with a horse or i'd walk up to a horse and i'd get a feeling in there and it's just nothing i'd ever experienced before um i what i have felt in my heart i felt heartbreak i felt being in love and in the pit of my stomach i felt fear and dread but that's Mm -hmm. about it that's the extent of what i've i've felt and it's funny i thought feelings was a word for Mm, I don't know how you're supposed to think. Like if you said, oh, my dog got out in the road and somewhere went over, and I go, oh, I feel sorry for you. But I don't, I don't say I feel sorry for you. I thought mm-hmm. sorry for you. Like if that happened to me, I wouldn't like it either. Yeah. But I didn't, didn't realise when you say I feel sorry for you that you feel something, you have a visceral sensation. I, I never had that. So I, 
you know, we don't have a class in school, in primary school, where they go, okay, children, just so you know, you should have these sensations here and here and here. And that's what a normal functioning being has. I mean, we don't know that. So yeah, I went through life without knowing that. So that was in February last year. And then here we go. In June last year, I flew to Florida for a three-day ayahuasca ceremony. Oh, you've gone deep. I love it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's the scariest thing I've ever done. Wow. Best thing. Yeah, they say that, again, that's Tim Ferriss. He talks about the ayahuasca all the time. He, it's oh, a, really? Yeah, it's a massive topic of what he does. There's loads of people doing it. Yeah, it was absolutely, it was amazing. So it was, there was 50 people at this thing. And so how it's legal is it's a church. Mm -hmm. okay, so it's a religious ceremony. Um, and we have, we had homework for a month before it. You know, you've got to change your diet uh, for a month before, it. you know, basically you're on a, you know, vegetarian, vegan type diet, no alcohol. Mm -hmm. You can do this, you've got to have all these affirmations and you've got to have all these intentions and, you know, you're not going there for a good time. And there were 50 people there and there were people ranging from like um, soldiers, you know, like um, soldiers with uh, PTSD. Yeah. Uh, you know, there were rape victims. There were heroin addicts. There was, there was one girl there who'd lost both the parents the previous Christmas to murder-suicide. Um, just, oh, people, the, the stories were just amazing. But anyway, and they all looked like... Like the, the soldier guy, he'd done three tours of duty overseas. We all sat around a big circle the first day on chairs in this big round circular tent and we had to introduce ourselves. And he sat there looking at the floor and one foot was just bouncing up and down and his hand was tapping on his leg just like that. And when they gave him the microphone, he stood up and he goes, my name's Mike and I've done two, you know, basically talk like that. After three ceremony, you know, we did a ceremony each day and uh, on the Sunday... He stood on the hand of the microphone him. He stood up and his face was just beaming. And he's like, hey, everybody, my name's Mikey. Um, I don't normally do this, but if anybody wants a hug, I'm your man. Wow. I'm just a completely different human being. Yeah. And there were so many of those. I didn't have probably as big uh, an experience as some of them. Like the first night I was like, I paid all this money to come along here for nothing. Like nothing happened. Um. But I went there, my intentions going there were to uh, face my fears and uh, open my heart. Mm -hmm. And on the, the last, you know, the last ceremony, that's, that's what happened. But oh, it's, that's scary, scary, scary stuff because it basically it just strips everything away in you know, because we, we hide so much, you know, all that self-judgment, that self-loathing, all that stuff, we kind of hide it. We don't even know we've got it in there, you know. Totally. And it drips all that away and you're staring yourself right in the face. Wow. What's that like? Um, you know, like I said, scariest thing ever done, best thing ever done. Mm. And, at, and at the time I said I would never, ever do that again. Like, no way could I do that again. But I'm, now I'm like, because there were people there who'd done it, you know, had been to one of those things two and three times, you know. Um, and, yeah, I, I probably would do it again, actually. I think I could, go, I could go deeper. So they give you 
the first night they give you uh, so the ayahuasca it's this thick brown bitter bitter liquid like it's disgusting um and they have a you know it's all fully done like there's a shaman there and they do the whole smoke ceremony and they're all you know it's, mm-hmm. it's just like it's done in the villages um and they give you one of these a, a, a cup of this stuff and then an hour later they come around and if you feel like you could use another one to go a bit deeper um and so the first night i only had one and then saturday we had a lunchtime ceremony so that was outside under trees in the daylight instead of in the dark um but i think i only took one then too and then the last night I, and then they kept saying go deep take more if you've you know now that you've had one and you know you can go deeper we just don't want to make sure you overdo it but you can go deeper have another have two and so i started at the ceremony i took two cups of it and um yeah it was uh it was it was an interesting experience wow and you'd do it again yeah now i'd do it again i think i would i'd definitely do it again because i'm you know in a different place now than i was then but that but that was a that was a uh there was a heart opening. So that's, that's the, that was the first time I felt like I felt stuff in my heart before, but that's on the left. This is in the middle and it's a, it's a, you know, anybody that's got a heart knows what it feels like, but mm. I didn't. Um, and now you do. Yeah. And it's, yeah, it's, it's pretty amazing. I think it's, you know, it's going to get worse before it gets better. Cause I think that that thing's going to get to where it, it's bloody painful, but anyway, the only way out is through, as they say. Yeah, and and it's life as well. Um, what was I? Glennon Doyle's um, book, Untamed. Untamed. I just listened Untamed. to that on audio book, and uh, and there was so much gold in it. It's just not even funny. And you know, she talked a lot about life is hard, you know, and if it's not hard, it'll get hard. Because that's kind of the point that we're meant to feel everything. Like that is the deal. We are actually meant to feel the whole lot of it. And um, for me, I, I, um, I'm probably too much feeling in a lot of ways. Um, and, and the paradox of what feeling is as well. You know, you can have um, such sadness and such gratitude and love and everything all at the one time. So it's... Um, it, it it is what life is. It, it really is, and it's such a shame to block that out because um, it's the key to everything. And your body will guide you to places that your mind could never even imagine going. So it's um it's a really interesting way to live. And and I'm so glad you found that and shared that. I had no idea you'd done that. What a fantastic, brave thing to do. Yeah, I don't. I didn't. I don't think I knew what I was getting myself in for. <laughs> They were always the best ones. When you have no idea, you just know you've got to head in that direction. They're the, they're the greatest. Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd heard a bit about it and stuff, but uh, yeah, actually, actually doing it, it's uh, yeah, it's um, pretty crazy stuff. Mm. But it, you know, it's not like you, you know, it's not like you're having some sort of a, you know, you're definitely not having a good time. <laughs> but it's not like it's um, you're drugged off your head or anything. You're actually there's you know, this place is. Got a big lawn outside. It's Florida, so you can we sleep outside. 
um, on these mattresses around the veranda and on the lawn. And um, most people are just laying down. You know, it's mostly thought stuff. You know, mm-hmm. you're not screaming and, you, oh, yeah, there's a bit of screaming and yelling and crying and howling at the moon, stuff like that. But, um, you know, you can get up and go to the loo and just, you know, you've got, there's like an attendant. Everybody has an attendant with them. Yeah. Um, you can get up and go to the loo or whatever, but it's not like you're staggering. It's not like you're drunk or anything like that. It's it's really interesting to where your, you know, your body functions. Wow. But, uh, but your psyche, I mean, it, yeah. It gets in there. Pretty cool stuff. Yeah, very cool stuff. I remember um, when I interviewed a woman called Jane Roberts from Equijay, and she's all about bringing the feminine back to the horse world. And, and basically, um, what you're kind of talking about is is rewiring the way um, we look at horses. It was done in a very way that you and I were grown up. You don't show emotion. You don't do anything like that. And and it's really about reestablishing um, the feeling, the gut feeling, the listening, the connection, and that kind of thing. And um, off when we've had conversations since not on the podcast she did say to me once she said tracy it's all about trauma and it it sat there and i didn't kind of really believe it or hear it but it sat in my mind and of all the conversations and we've had four hour long conversations on telephone that little line has sat in my head and i've gone through my own interesting thing in the last uh last year or so and um i've had to I found a course where I can actually release my own trauma and it's profound. It's absolutely profound. The difference of a human being that I am by being able to um, just release trauma from my body. That's why I love the fact that you're talking about polyvagal and all of these things are happening because the deeper I go into it and um, you know, that's ayahuasca, all of those things are there to help release these traumas from our body and help us get to, you know, more to this present moment and um, there's so many different ways that you can do it and everyone's going on their own little you know journey to to find their way for us all to get to the same thing and it really is just to be here in this moment and and to feel what's going on for us now and to release those traumas and um, I've always um, seen horses as one of the pathways because of their ability to show us what's going on inside us in every moment it's an amazing thing you know, I think the other thing about horses, though, is, is um, I, you know, in in order to get along with horses really well, you've got to get yourself sorted. Yeah. Um, and I think that's another thing that's so good about them is there's something people are passionate about, and most people wouldn't do that work for their partner, and probably wouldn't do it for themselves but they'll do it if it helps me get along with my horse better. And I think that's a huge gift that the horses bring is that they, we're just fascinated by them. And if you are around them long enough and want to, you know, you, you really get into it where you really want to get along with them, you really have to start to look inward. And like I said, you, most people wouldn't do that sort of inner work for anybody else, including themselves. That's so true. That's so very true. Yeah, we'll look at everything we do for horses at the moment. Um, yeah, so working on yourself is the least you can do after everything you do for mucking out stables and all the kit and gear you buy them and the training that you do. And, yeah, that's a really great point. I love it. Yeah, and that's, you know, that's kind of like where I'm – that's kind of my focus these days. I mean, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm not a therapist or anything like that, but – what I have started talking about at the start of my clinics these days is that your thoughts 
your emotions and your energy is the biggest part of the whole thing. What you do physically is a part of it, but it's not near as much as the rest of it. And so you really have to be able to control what you think about. You know, your 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 mind controls your your energy and your you know these days i'm really trying to get my horses to work off energy and a few years ago i would have thought you're a nut (laughs) but the more i do it it's like wow i think that's their first language it is it is totally that is absolutely the way and when people say my horse doesn't understand me i'm like but do you understand your horse because they're actually reading your thoughts and your feelings they're reading your body first what you're asking of them is coming from inside and if you can nail that, then then you'll be talking a similar language. Yeah, it's been it's it's pretty amazing, you know. Um, and once you start working on that, like so that energy stuff with horses, it makes you be present because you have to be in your you have to be out of your head and in your body in order to 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 use that energy. And so, yeah. I, you know, for me, it's great. It's like a form of therapy because I have to not be in my head in order for it to work. And so if something doesn't work, I, d- I don't think, why didn't that work? I think, where was your mind? Where were you? Oh, okay, I wasn't in here. Totally. That's what happens. Yeah, and, and they know. They know the moment that um, they know the moment that your mind wanders. Yeah, you know, and what I'm struggling with now is retraining my horses. You know, like... Or not retraining, but re, you know, reconnecting with mine that they've got a lot of the old me in there. And once you really start seeing all the little things um, and how they feel about you, you know, and times they feel good about you and times they don't. But to the casual bystander, they wouldn't know. They're oh, always being great, but I can tell, okay, you know, I must have been not present here for a bit because you're, you know, you've, you're not feeling like you were. And it's, um, it's not hard. I imagine some people would struggle with it because they go, oh, God, he doesn't like me anymore or something like that. But it's just, mm. yeah, it's just constant feedback on, on what you're doing. And it's, you know, I, I think that whole, I think the whole key to it for me is that non-judgmental thing because I don't beat myself up then. I go, okay. So I've got a, have you ever heard of a, a meditation device called a Muse? No. Muse, M-U-S-E. So it's a, it's a brain sensing headband. And so you put it on your head and it connects oh, to an app. Yeah, I think I remember the, I think I remember the ads coming through social media feeds a while um, ago. And, then yep. you, and you have earphones go from your phone into your ears. And it, so it gives you feedback on where your mind's at. Mm. And so the feedback I've got it set to is called rainforest. And so if your mind is busy, you get heavy rain. If your mind is um neutral you get wow like rain on leaves but if your mind becomes really really present chirp 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 you get birds chirping (laughs) and um so it gives you instant feedback boom right right then and so when i first started doing it you know like there's lots of heavy rain and stuff and then the first time i got a bird the bird goes chirp chirp and i think i got a bird and then (laughs) (laughs) but um and so, oh, my friend Jane Park, I was talking about the mental coach, yeah. the World of Question Games. When she was here before the World of Question Games, she tried it. Well, she, in her younger days, she was a yogi. She lived in Indonesia, lived in an ashram in India for a while and stuff. 
And so she said, oh, I'll try it. So she tried it and she did this throat breathing, Darth Vader sounding meditation breathing technique. And she got, I don't know, 30 or 40 birds out of this thing. Mm. At that point in time, I, I hadn't got any birds out of it, I don't think. Um, and so I've been using it for a couple of years now. But here a couple of weeks ago, I got 160 birds one day and 178 the next day. Like it was just chirp, 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 chirp for 20 minutes. Wow. And then a few days later, and I don't know what happened, but a few days later, I spent 20 minutes and couldn't get a single bird. And I've been getting, you know, it's been 40 birds and then it's been 50 birds and then it's been 60 birds and then it's been, you know, and then it's been 100 birds. And then I made a jump from 100 up to 160 and then it was 178. And then the next week was zero birds. And I was like, okay, zero birds. You know, I, I think it'd be very easy having that feedback to get bent out of shape. I'm like, why isn't it working? Yeah, it's I failed. I'm going to give it up now. Stupid muse. I'm not using it anymore. It's yeah. Just, it's just feedback. I tell you what, we, um, uh, Valentine's Day last year, Robin said, okay, we're going away for the day. I want you to be ready to leave at six o'clock in the morning. I'm like, well, this would be cool. Do I dress for the beach or do I dress for the mountains? And she said, I just dress for in town. So, Valentine's Day, we get up, we leave here at six o'clock in the morning, we drive to San Jose Airport, get on a plane and fly to LA, and then we get in an Uber and he drops us off in front of Bulletproof Labs in Santa Monica. So, which is Dave Asprey's got this thing there. It's a like a biofeedback gym, basically. Wow. It's like going to the gym with all the equipment, but it's all biofeedback stuff. And um, that was our, that's what we're doing for the day. And the first thing they did was took me in a room and had me meditate for half an hour wearing an, uh, an electroencephalogram. Mm-hmm. So they could see where your what, where your brain waves are, and so I had uh, you know someone put me on that, and they took Robin to do something else. And anyway, when she was done and I was done, they came in the room and they're going to switch me out, and Robin was going to do the thing. And the the guy looked at the chart and he goes, "Whoa!" So I was in um, Delta brain waves for twenty five out of the thirty minutes. The first five minutes I was all over the place, but then I was in Delta. Um, for 25 of the 30 minutes, which is excellent. And I think it's the muse that actually helped me do it. Definitely. Having that kind of feedback and showing you mm. where you're getting it right. What a fantastic tool. I had no idea it could really do that. I thought it was just oh, a gimmick. It's, 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 it's amazing. Now, there's a muse too that has more features. I don't know what features they are. Um, but the muse, I, you know. I'll use it on planes. I'll use it in airports and stuff. But yeah, it's it's great because it, you just and and have you ever heard of Dr. Joe Dispenza? I was going to speak about him next. I was going to ask you if you'd heard of him because that's where that's where the magic happens when you get into that space. I saw him space. live in London last year, actually. Him and Greg Braden. So I was doing some clinics in England and Scotland, and I was there for two weeks. And I had to, I was in going to be in Edinburgh for the last clinic, but then I had to go back to London and fly out of London. Well, on the Monday, so the clinic, last clinic was on Sunday. On the Monday was a, a one-day seminar in London with uh, Joe Dispenza and Greg Braden. My son Tyler was with me. So we took the, took the overnight train from Edinburgh to, um, to London. So I had one of the sleeper cars. It was like being murdered on the Orient Express or something. It was pretty cool. <laughs> then we went to that um, the one-day thing with, with uh, Dr. Joe and Greg Braden the next day. But... One of Dr. Joe's meditations is what he calls the blessing of the energy centers. Have you ever done that one? I've heard of that one. I've seen that one, but I haven't got to that one yet. Um, that one, since I started doing that meditation, that one will get you, you tingling all over. 
like you can like he what he what he has you do like it's a it's supposed he calls them energy centers you know their chakras whatever mm-hmm. he has you focus on a chakra and it's and it's not you're not focusing on your breathing you're focusing let's say it's your your solar plexus chakra okay he has you focus on that then he has you focus on the area inside you so you get like a picture a mental picture of the inside of you okay got mm-hmm. that yep then he wants you to Picture the area outside of that, about arm's length. If you're into aura, is about probably as big as your aura is. Mm-hmm. But then what he wants to do is try to be aware of the energy in that area, the energy in the air of that mm-hmm. area. And so you start, your body turns into this bloody radio antenna or something rather. But um, but since I started doing that, that meditation, anytime I do any meditation at all, I'll sit down and start to meditate and my hands will tingle the, like it's almost like the hair on the back of your neck stand up except it's all over your body mm. um legs bottom of your feet hands arms except my torso it doesn't do it my torso doesn't doesn't tingle mm. arms hands feet legs uh do that but with that muse these days i sit down and i'll just start as soon as i start like i can even think about doing it right now my hands are tingling <laughs> but anyway, it was that dr joe that was that dr joe um meditation that really got all that stuff going and so what i've been doing with that like with the like if you focus on the palm of your hand and it, you really feel energy and i've been working on moving my horses over like when i'm saddling up or whatever i'll stand there beside them with my hand and just focus on the palm of my hand and it gets all tingly and hot you know and my hand's probably three or four inches off and i'm getting to where i can move them over by focusing on that you know it's like it's like reiki sort of energy sort of thing mm-hmm. um yeah i'll just get them to where i can get them to move over a step or two with that yeah, it's kind of fun to play with yeah i was going to say have you ever taken your muse into your horse training and just sat in the middle and seen if you can get your horse to do things from the chirping bird stage there's a challenge uh, no i don't think oh, i haven't tried that because i i don't think i could do anything and be at the chirping bird stage Mm. you know when i'm at the chirping bird stage i am totally focused on so there's a there's a uh, a meditation i do that i actually learned at the ayahuasca thing in florida um where you it's about your chakras so you focus on breathing in and you mentally picture it coming in your third eye and out the top of your head out your crown chakra Mm -hmm. and then from there it goes out your throat in your throat, up to your crown. Out your heart, in through your heart, up to your crown. Out your solar plexus, in through your solar plexus, up to your crown. And if and if you if I, that's the one for me that gets all the birds. If I can really think about that one and really focus on those things, it's chip 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 chip. Mm. But I've got to really focus on it. Yeah. So I I don't know if I could open my eyes and uh, do anything with a horse and have the birds chirping. Wow, there's your one thing challenge. at a time, Tracy. One thing at a time. I would love to see that happen. That would be amazing, and I'd like you to video it <laughs> and then just send it to me. I want to see that challenge. I think you'll get there. I think you'll get there. Oh, I I, I know it's doable because I know there's people who 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 um, definitely can do it. You know, I was fifty before I started on any of this stuff, so I'm, you know I'm a bit of a late starter. 
But the great um, thing is, is because so many people in the world um, in as horse people can relate to um, how you were from the age of, you know, when you started in horses up until 50, you're taking so many people on this journey with you. So many people you're opening the minds of and that's just such an amazing gift to the world of horses. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, I think that's where it's going to where, you know, it's, like, it's not, I know what I'm doing. <laughs> it's, this is what I'm doing. And um, it's not to say I'm one step in front of you or something or other or, you know, whoever, mm. but this is where I'm going and this is what I'm discovering. And if you want to come along for the ride, I'll tell you what I'm doing, but it's not, you know, I'm, I'm really in uncharted territory now. Like I don't, I have no idea what I'm doing. I'm just, uh, just like I have for the last few years, I've just been experimenting stuff. But what's funny is you go down this path and then you realize, Oh, so many people have been in this, down this path before me that you just don't hear about them. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That there, there are people there. I um, interviewed a woman from God. Where is she from? Jeannie Patel is her name, anyway. And um, what she does with her horses is ridiculous. She just has a normal conversation like you and I having, and they decide what they're going to do. And they decided she had to stop trimming their hooves. They wanted to try and do it themselves. It's just this, these people out there who are living in this way. And she doesn't train her horses. She just has a conversation with them, and they go off and do something. And it's like, oh my God, it's possible. And um, and I think it's the it's the road we're all on. But um, there's they're few and far between. They're very hard to find. But um, I went and saw one of your. I think it was last year, towards the end of last year, one of your clinics that you did. It was about an hour south of here. It was like in the middle of nowhere in this big big arena, and um, and the sense last that I got. Year. Yeah, last, last year. Last oh. year. Were you there when the, the horse lay down and went to sleep? Yeah. Yeah, that one. Uh, yeah. Let me ask you this. Was there an energy in that place that was just crazy? Yeah, it was, it was an interesting day. I got the real sense on that day that whilst you're, whilst you're seeking and, and you've looked at other trainers and what they're doing, my sense was that you're gathering information but you're, you're you're creating a new path. And that was the energy of the day that I got. I'm like, you're finding your way onto a new path. Like you're listening to and you're hearing other people's information and you're going to, you're going to, you, you, you're on, you're on your way and you're going to find something to do. Help us all. Forget you guys. I'm just trying to help me. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the whole thing. By helping yourself, you help others. That That is well, the paradox of life. It's like you're not actually doing it to help others. You're just helping yourself. along. It's like this podcast. I'm doing it to make the world a better place for horses. But, oh, my God, the things I'm learning along the way. And I get emails all the time of people going, oh, my God, this changed my life. And I'm like, dude, I get to ask people whatever questions I want. <laughs> you know. I get a front seat. It's amazing to, to be able to learn. So I think it is the work that you do on yourself is the gift. And then, you know, the fact that you're doing it is, is what um, gives back to the world as well. Yeah, that, um, that clinic last year was in Lamington, by the way. Yes, that's where it was. Um, I don't even know if Lamington has a pub. I think it's just an area. I don't think there's an actual town there. Um, there was... 
there was a horse there that was very shut down. That was the Appaloosa. I don't know if you saw him lay down, but um, the first day, all they had, had to, that horse, the later they had that horse, he just didn't seem to be interested in anything she had to say. And I said, so you can't ask him to do anything because it's not going to help. You can ask him to do whatever, but it's not going to help. So all I had to do was match steps with him. Like wherever he wants to go, you go with him. Okay. Because, you know, I said, well, you're trying to get him to connect with you, but first you need to connect with him. And he's mm-hmm. thinking he wants to go. So if you just match, and so she spent that whole first day just matching steps with him. That's all she did. And the second day she came in, she did a bit of that. And then at one point in time, he stopped and he was just kind of standing around for a bit. And she was standing there and, and I said, I was talking about something. I said, hey, let me, I'll show you something that I heard or saw or whatever. And I went over and I took the lead rope from her and she handed me the, did you see this bit? Yep. She handed me the lead rope. And as soon as I took the lead rope off of her, that horse, buckled at the knees and went and lay down and went to sleep mm. and like was out. And that was one of those, I'm glad you get to see that because that's one of those things that it's like, what the hell just happened? But I do think it wasn't just, it wasn't just, I don't think it was just, I mean, I think the owner, doing all that matching steps the day before kind of set that up to where you could feel safe. And then maybe there's an energy in me that helps a bit too, but I really think that it's the collective of everybody who was there. Yeah. I felt, I felt everybody was on the same wavelength. You know, people that come to my clinics these days, no one comes to see me wave a big stick or whatever. You know what I mean? Mm. Um, And I think everybody's of the, the same, um, the same mindset and I just I did for me I felt a vibe and I don't feel vibes but I felt an energy there and I and I think it's just it's it's a collective energy it's just a group of like-minded people all in the same place at the same time it's almost like a I don't know you get like when I go to Europe and stuff you go into some of those big old cathedrals and you walk in there and there's just a there's just an energy in there and I, for me I felt I, I, I felt that at that clinic yeah, yeah, it was a good clinic. And I think um, I think what makes the energy as well is your candor in telling your story at the start. You know, you were very open at what you'd been through, at, 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 at what you were doing a lot was still experimenting. And it really, um, because you were so open and vulnerable with your story, um, it allowed everyone in the audience uh, to be open as well. So it doesn't, you know, you're not standing there going, by the end of today, you're going to be able to go home and, you know, train your horse in this way and you're going to get this out of them. It was just very much a, um, you created that energy because of the way that you spoke to people at the start and told your story in a vulnerable way to a bunch of horse people and you didn't know whether they'd receive it or not. But, um, you know, thankfully this group did and, and it opened the energy up to allow it to happen, which helped that horse. Yeah, that was pretty. That was pretty cool. We almost had three down at the same time, didn't we? Because we had two <laughs> go down, and then the the one lady was under saddle, and uh, her horse went to lay down, and she kind of pulled his head up or something rather than it broke the broke the moment for a minute. Excuse me, <clears throat> but yeah, we almost had three of them unconscious here. We did a clinic in South Australia here just just before the lockdown. I flew back from Australia. My wife and I flew back from Australia and then we got home. <laughs> when we landed at the airport in San Francisco, uh, my wife texted our horseshoe and said, are you coming out tomorrow? And he said, no, we're in lockdown. Well, when we left Australia, got on that plane, there was no lockdown. So we got here and and uh, 
we're in lockdown, but anyway, there was that I did a clinic in Adelaide that weekend and it was the same there that, that and there's a lot of people, I had like a hundred spectators, but the energy there was so cool. Like it's mm. just, the vibe was amazing. I just, I'm just so lucky that I get to have people like that come to the clinics because, you know, doing the clinics, I get, you know, I get like feedback from the people who are watching the clinics and if they stand there, sitting there, it'd be like a musician playing to a crowd of people and no one was clapping or, you know, yeah. just sitting there staring at you. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm very lucky to, to have um, people like that to, to come to the clinics. I think it really makes makes the clinic. Yeah, the group energy is always a, a great dynamic. It's a, it's a beautiful thing to watch. And you attract the people that are ready for what it is you're delivering to. That's how it works. Yeah, well, like I said, I'm, I'm, I think I'm pretty fortunate that way. Mm. You know, because what I, most most people who do clinics, um, people just come along to the clinic because I want to fix the damn horse sort of thing. And because I've been kind of open about my journey on, you know, on YouTube and then on my online subscription thing people come along kind of knowing what to expect but a lot of clinicians they have people they have doubters come along who want them to prove them wrong sort of thing Mm -hmm. i mean and that is just soul-sucking work yeah that is no fun at all and so i don't have that and it's you know and i don't i don't know if i'm i'm made if my makeup would put up with that I, i don't think i could do it if i had a lot of that um, but yeah, I'm, I'm very fortunate to have the people, the type of people that come along to them. It's great. Mm. And on that note, we're very fortunate to have you in the horse world. I've been waiting for this um, this one for a while, and uh, a lot of my listeners have been asking for me to speak to you for quite some time. So I must say, it's uh, it's been worth the wait, and it's been an absolute pleasure. So I just want to thank you so much for your time, Warwick. But um, more than anything, I just want to thank you for going on this journey and sharing it with us. You know, you're um, so generous with your time and you're just not afraid to tell us what's going on. It's fantastic. You know, it's funny when I was talking to Sarah the other day, she said the same thing. And I said, well, you know, what I was, when I, you know, what I was doing before with the horses wasn't, it wasn't, um, it wasn't manufactured or fabricated or, or, you know, I didn't, I didn't do something on camera that I didn't do off camera sort of thing. It was authentic anyway. I was, mm-hmm. I was, I was telling everybody exactly what I was doing. I just had me doing something different. So I don't, you know, I don't really, a lot of people say, Oh, you're kind of being very brave, being vulnerable or whatever and tell us what's going on. But I don't, I don't tend to look at it that way. Cause I don't, I'm just, I've always said, this is what I'm doing. I just haven't been doing something that's maybe not so mainstream right now. Um, and I think it's a bit of like, I think Brene Brown talks about when you're vulnerable, instead of getting, oh, well, you're an idiot, you get, yeah, me too. And, yeah. and as soon as you start getting that, it's like open the floodgates sort of thing, you know, like, but yeah, but I, but I, I don't, you know, it's not like, oh, what should I tell him? What shouldn't I tell him? Um, I've never been that way. It just so happens I'm talking about different stuff than I used to talk about. Mm, yeah, I've always believed, and that's why I do long-form interviews on this 
podcast because I believe in the power of telling your story. I think it's got more power than trying to teach or do anything else. It's just um, it um, there's a lot to be said for listening to what other people have achieved and been through and how they do it. And then everyone can take the little pieces and learn from each person's story. So um, thank you for sharing yours today. It's been a pleasure. And I, uh, I look forward uh, to having another one one day. Thanks for asking all the right questions. Oh, that, that's the easy part. <laughs> all right. Thank you, Warwick. Thanks so much. It's been great. I'm on a mission to create a community of conscious horse people so that their horses all over the world can live a better life. This is a big mission with a wonderful message and it needs your help. If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to join me on my mission of making the world a better place for horses by bringing consciousness to the horse world, please do one of the following. You can go over to our Patreon page at patreon p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash come along for the ride podcast and become a subscriber to the show as patreon members you're helping this podcast become a weekly show once again and remember any funds that go over the cost of production will go into new and exciting projects that you as a subscriber will have a say in you could also pop over to edenriverequestrian.com and see our range of sustainable, ethical and organic gear for both horses and humans. Remember, 50% of profits go back to helping horses all over the world live a better life. Or you could leave us a review and tell the world why you love this podcast. You can do that through whichever app it is that you're listening now. The best place to do it is through iTunes. They give juice that gives other bits juice that boost the podcast up and basically that gets it into more people's ears so that we can make a real difference in the world you could also share this podcast with a friend tell everyone you know about it and guide them to an episode that you think they'd really enjoy all the links you need can be found in the show notes thanks again for listening and i'll catch you next time on come along for the ride